VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, September the 20th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Tell us some good news. We're on the air to br- bring up whatever topic is important to you, so let's do it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590-VOCM, which is 8626. So as you heard Brian Medora mention the VOCM newscast, the Jays a big win at Yankee Stadium last night, 7-1 over the Bronx Bombers. They need to get the 91 wins to guarantee, them, uh, to guarantee themselves a spot in the playoffs. So they got 84 now, 7-4 the rest of the way. You know it. All right, it was on this date in history, Yankees legend Mickey Mantle, 1968, hit his final career home run, 536 for the Mick, number seven. Anyway, there you go. Another interesting one. So you wonder how much athletes have improved. They're bigger, stronger, faster. But it was on this date in 1954 that uh, Englishman Roger Bannister was awarded Britain's Silver Pairs Trophy. And, of course, Roger Bannister, best known for being the first person to break the four-minute barrier to run a mile. Since then, in 1954, he ran 359-something. The current world record for running the mile is 343, so I've only knocked 16 seconds off all the way since 1954, which I think is pretty interesting stuff. Good morning to the folks on the West Coast. Hockey fans and participants in the West Coast Hockey League, they got a massive body blow when they found out that the Deer Lake Red Wings are pulling out of the West Coast Senior Hockey League, going to join the Central West Senior Hockey League. So last year, they managed to get up and running again, handful of games, and went on to the playoffs. And, of course, it included Deer Lake, Cornerbrook, and Port of Basque. Now with only two teams remaining, it seems obvious that they're not going to be playing senior hockey on the West Coast. I don't have any inside baseball information as to why the Red Wings chose to make this move to the Central West League. But for all hands involved in senior hockey, it has been uh, serious heavy lifting over the last couple of decades to get leagues up and running and keep them solid, keep the teams in play. But anyway, if you're on the West Coast and want to talk about it, especially if you're a rep of the West Coast Senior Hockey League and or the Deer Lake Red Wings, just for information, it would be interesting to have you on the show. All right. So yesterday we got the updated numbers on inflation. And we're told that inflation now is uh, rose by 0.7% all the way to 4%. Basically about energy prices. A lot of uh, focus on the price at the pumps. The price at the pump went up 4.6% in August alone. Now, for starters, I completely understand what people say. 4%, it certainly feels a lot worse than that. And I agree, it feels a lot worse than that. I don't have the brain power to work through all the metrics included in coming up with the inflation rate, but four really feels much, much different, especially as the grocery shopper in our home. So we can dig into it a little bit. But in the world of groceries, because I think that's where the big pain comes. Yes, I paid $1.93.9 per liter yesterday at the pump. It is extraordinary. It's punitive, prohibitive for many. But as a result, things like Metrobus ridership way up. Now, some of that might be because of the government-issued low-income bus pass, and I'm sure that does play a role. But here's some numbers for context. Ridership during the first eight months of 2023 was 44% higher than the same period in 2019. So through January through August, Metrobus had over 3 million riders compared with over 2 million riders in the first eight months of 2019. Looks like they're going to see ridership about 4.5 million this year extraordinary stuff. I mean, it was all too common a sight to be driving around and see pretty much empty metro buses on their routes. That's changed. So maybe it's because of the price at the pump. Maybe it's because of the low-income passes. But I think the conversation, it's been 
kicked around for a long time about what public transit might look uh, look like elsewhere because we know what Metrobus means in and around the Northeast Avalon but with the price at the pump and access to health care and access or proximity to shopping opportunities I don't know how it works but I know that people are interested in having a public transit type of conversation outside the Northeast Avalon and I'm interested if you are all right so there's this economist out at the University of Calgary that I try to follow along because I think his insights into inflation and price of groceries and price at the pump and the carbon tax is all very interesting. Not that I necessarily agree with him all the time. It's just I find the insight and the way he breaks it down easy enough for me to absorb. So this guy's Trevor Tome, and he's talking about groceries. And looking at the federal government and summoning all the CEOs of the Big Five to Ottawa to talk about stabilizing grocery prices by Thanksgiving, people need to feel and find relief. But government intervention like that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to me, even though I want to pay less for my groceries, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to Trevor Tome. Now, he's not the be-all and end-all voice. I'm just going to use his uh, most recent column just for fodder. He said, upon first glance, this makes no sense. He says, with a little more thought, it makes even less sense. So when we talk about the prices, we do indeed focus in on corporate greed, right? I mean, that's the easy one to go to. Capitalism in some form has run amok, especially when we talk about manufacturing, distribution, and retail for grocery prices. But margins are really not that much different. Retail, food and beverage retailers in Canada earn roughly 4.2 cents in profit per dollar sold in the second quarter of this year. That's up from 3.7% uh, a year earlier. So, absolutely, it does indeed reflect the profits and the revenue at the big uh, grocery retailers. He goes on to say, since early 2020, grocery prices have risen by 21%. Had markups not increased, they'd be up by 20%. And these are using real audited financial statements from the corporations. Now, yes, their profits are up. It's undeniable. And the impact is real because every dollar counts. But Mr. Tom goes on also to point out that some of the inputs that do have a direct reflection on the price of groceries are coming back to earth. And so consequently, it will take time. There will be a lag between prices coming down for inputs before we see it reflected or stable prices at the grocery store. And here's what he goes on to tell us. The cost of many important farm, uh, farm inputs have fallen recently. Machinery fuel is down nearly 27% since its peak last year. Fertilizer is down 17%. Uh, the price of grains is down 8%. Now, that's not across the board inside the grocery store. Cattle and livestock prices are absolutely way up. Dairy is way up. This is where it's an interesting one. Dairy has been priced and controlled by supply management. It was implemented in 1972, all in an effort, of course, to make that industry viable because we cannot find ourselves in a place where imported dairy is the go-to. But we do indeed pay a lot for dairy. If it was removed, there would absolutely have to be some sort of compensation for dairy farmers for their loss. But here's what it looks like. If you eliminated supply management for milk, it would cut the price nearly in half. That's according to the OECD. One in every $7 spent on groceries by the typical Canadian family is spent on dairy products. Milk alone cost consumers $3.9 billion more in 2021. We'd save about $40 per month doing away with uh, supply management and the control of the prices on dairy. Now, I actually know some farmers in the dairy industry. Their margins aren't huge. But the price at the grocery store, I think, is where the vast majority of Canadians would focus in on what could be done. So we can dig in a little further to government intervention, the price of groceries. But that is a, the epitome of what people will refer to as the slippery slope. Anyway, you want to take it on? Let's go. A couple of issues on the, the world of alternative energy and whatnot. Now, 
Good news for the folks on the Bayvert uh, Peninsula now that the Rambler mine has been sold to an Australian junior mining company. They're not going back at the mining right away, but for the price tag of $65 million, they're sitting on significant copper reserves. About 400 people on the peninsula were once employed at the Rambler mines, the Ming mine. Copper is going to be in demand, so good, good news for the folks on the Bay of our Peninsula. But in that world of alternative forms of transportation and energy and what have you, still plenty of conflicting thoughts on who should pay for examination of one thing or another. Dennis Brown, of course, the province's consumer advocate. Where's that story? I had it right here in front of me. Mr. Brown is saying that the newly proposed load study into electric vehicles should not be borne by the ratepayer. Now, Mr. Brown has also gone on to say that installation of uh, rapid chargers across the province should not be borne by the ratepayer either, given the fact that there's a late uh, 800 electric vehicle owners representing 0.2% of the light-duty vehicles in the province. Now, it jumped dramatically last year, very likely with supply and surprises coming back to earth and technology improving, and it's up to you whether or not you're interested in electric vehicle or hybrid or what have you. But here's the issue for Newfoundland Power's request for ratepayer monies. Mr. Brown says that $1.5 million should not be borne by us. Why? Because notably, we're already paying Newfoundland Power $1.9 million for a complete load study, which includes electric vehicles in all, in all forms of our electricity needs. So fair enough. If we're doing a study on load for $1.9 million, which of course would have to include electric vehicles because they require electricity, why should there be a $1.5 million standalone load study solely for electric vehicles? So again, some people might be inclined based on carbon emissions and or cost of operating, which to me looks really attractive when we talk about electric vehicles. So that's an issue that if you want to take it on, we can do exactly that. Now, what's this next scribble? So last week on Friday, Fridays for a Future and a climate protest, which saw some really emotional pleas made by the protesters talking about, you know, leaving the oil in the ground, curbing production, no new production, all the rest of it. And yes, we can indeed take on uh, all facets of that particular conversation. Lots of kind of strange reaction to it by some. But if you want to bring it forward, we can do it now. Nothing but nothing replaces the financial impact that oil has had since Hibernia went on stream. So I know it's a big GDP conversation, but there's a lot to it as well. Now, today is also a day where we're going to see protests and counter-protests about LGBTQ curriculum in the K-12 school system. For me, there's got to be a way to get that conversation back on the rails because it is completely and utterly derailed. I think there's a distinct misunderstanding about exactly what the curriculum includes. Now, the problem is, every time we even broach the topic, for instance, if someone talks about trans, transsexual, and any conversation about accepting and understanding the people in your community, the people in your classroom, their parents, it automatically goes to someone talking about a pronoun, and then the immediate reaction in some corners is about genital mutilation, which is a long stretch from a fairly innocuous conversation. Now, parents being part of the decision-making, and in fact, the key and core decision-makers, I think as a parent, and for all parents listening, we would agree with that. It's also the importance of a open line, a direct line of communication with our own children about where they are, what they think, how they feel, right? So I hope we can find a way to get the conversation back on track. And there will be protests today across the country. There will be counter-protests across this province and across the country. 
But how do we figure out how to have a bit more of a meaningful, realistic conversation on these types of important societal issues? At this moment, the plot has been lost entirely. And getting that back to a place where we can have conversations based on fact, emotion will always play a role in human nature, right? We're always going to be reactionary and emotional, but sometimes our emotions need to be tempered, whether you be all in or all out on this particular topic. It's a tricky one. It's not necessarily the things that I go to bed at night and think, I can't wait to have these most traumatic, difficult conversations, but the fact of the matter is, when we don't have them, we find ourselves in a place like we find ourselves today with these types of protests. I really do think there's a mischaracterization of the curriculum. If you stand back and think about it, people are suggesting that we have teachers, administrators, school departments represented by all different ages, fresh graduates, 30-year veterans, all with different political leanings, and the insinuation that they're willingly and wanting to hurt your children just stands, doesn't pass the smell test for me. Because think about it, you will have some teachers who have voted NDP, some voted liberal, some voted conservative, and always have, and yet they're in the classroom, and you're trying to tell me that they are purposefully trying to hurt your children. The reference to indoctrination has always been part of it, right? So I know that some people don't want to hear it, some people want to talk about nothing but, and if that's something of interest to you this morning, we can do it. I just got to take a break for a sip of coffee. We're back. On that front, very quickly approaching at the end of this month is a deadline for victims at the hand of Mount Cashel's Christian Brothers and Roman Catholic clergy at Mount Cashel. So there's been a couple of dozen came forward recently over the summer. There's about 200 claimants in full. And of course, selling off of the church assets is part of that conversation. But you know, when we talk about sexual abuse and indoctrination, this is, an, this is an example that's been through the courts, adjudicated by the courts, all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. So about 200 claimants, their payment will be in the range of $100,000. And yes, the lawyers who've been working on contingency for decades on this file will get paid. That's also part of the natural process of these types of class action suits. So, you know, if we extend the conversation off to what it's, mean, what it's meant to see the sell-off of all these church-held assets, we're happy to take that on as well. Uh, a couple of quickies before we get to the break. So, completely bizarre story, and good work by, I think it's Ryan Cook brought this forward, or the C or CP got information here about the Marine Institute's relationship with Ocean Gate Expeditions and the Titan Submersible, which of course imploded, seeing the loss of five lives. So, the Marine Institute, I think, is one of the real gems in this province, and I think internationally has a terrific reputation for the research they do, the work they do, the staff they have, the simulators that are being utilized by governments and private businesses worldwide. But this is a strange one. So, the Marine Institute says they didn't have to do, or they did not do, any required or inferred due diligence because there was no plan for staff or students at the Marine Institute to be a passenger on the Titan. Even though prior to the Titan being launched, there was thoughts that if there was an empty seat and someone didn't want to come up with the $250,000, it may indeed see a spot for a student. So it's hard to have it both ways. What this did do, say people in the industry, is it gave Ocean Gate ex Expeditions and their Titan submersible legitimacy which is obviously a problem. You can only hope that this doesn't stick to the Marine Institute because, as I said, and I think is internationally understood, that it is a top quality post-secondary institution. And this one is just completely bizarre. Entering into these types of relationships, 
has required due diligence. On top of that, just to extend the conversation one step further, I know the Coast Guard and all search and rescue capacity, they've long and always said that there's never going to be a fee charge to, for them to execute their duties. When these high-risk voyages, adventures take place, rowing across the Atlantic in a veritable bathtub, these types of deep dives to the Titanic or anywhere else, should that not come with liability insurance? Because some of these searches will inevitably, like the search for the Titan wreckage, millions and millions and millions of dollars. So I know that sounds cruel and callous and cold, but anyway, you want to take it on. Let's do that. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? A uh, very quick one before we get to the break. On the good news. You know I'm always looking for a bit of good news. I want to say congratulations to Wayne Johnston, local author. He has won the 2023 Stephen Leacock Memorial Medal for his memoir, Jenny's Boy. It's all about uh, reflecting on the tough love, the wit, and the wisdom of his grandmother uh, in Jenny's Boy, the book. It's for humor. The last recipient of this particular medal was CBC personality Rick Mercer, contributor to this program. I wish you'd call it more. Rick Mercer won it uh, last year for Talking to Canadians, of course, which is his memoir. So congratulations to Mr. Johnson. It comes with a $25,000 prize. Terrific stuff. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to bring up a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board on line number one. Good morning, Thomas. You're on the air. Hi, Petty. Thomas Rollicon, everybody. Call you and give me an update of what happened to me since our last conversation. Okay. Well, we'll remind the folks um, your circumstance before we get into the update. Right. The circumstances have been forced living with a slum landlord, and the how, how how I've been treated since that happened, and I almost lost my life because of the mistakes of an investigator by the income support. And I want to let the public know that what happened to me was ungivable and not properly done the way it should have been done for a senior citizen of Newfoundland and Labrador, working since he's 16 years old, Patty. And all I ever done was work and make a living for my family. And my sickness that I got, heart disease, diabetes, really bad arthritis, anxiety, bipolar and everything that's going on in my life and the government knows this and had this done to me anyway because of the power of an investigator with 15 years experience took his power and done this to me put me in the motel in Carbonera with no food no funding no medications no eastern health travel I was living on food bank food I ended up twice in the Carbonara hospital with pains in my chest and pains in my stomach. The second time that that happened, the paramedics had to bring me around with a needle in my bed to get me to the hospital. I almost went into a full diabetic coma. My sugar levels was only, I think if I can remember, it was only 0.2. Brought me to, brought me to the hospital in Carbonara. The staff there fed me, checked me over, made sure everything was right and wouldn't leave, let me leave the hospital, Paddy, until I was fit to go, but made sure that I had food in the house before they left me. One of the workers with the fact team went over to the food bank, picked up groceries, come to the hospital, picked me up and brought me back home. And I have been suffering ever since, Paddy. I can't get my medications regulated back into my body. 
I'm sick all the time. I'm in pain all the time because I can't get the right help that I should be getting. Instead of having all of this taken away from me, Paddy, by the Eastern Health, Income Support and the Liberal Government. And all I want to say to your listeners, I promised the senior citizens of Newfoundland and Labrador that I'll do everything in my power to get rightful things done for all our hard work that we did to build this island. It's a terrible circumstance to find yourself in, Thomas, and I do recall our previous conversation. So you say you have an update. Hopefully it's positive, or are we still having the battle? Well, the update is, Paddy, is that in my mind, I'm training my mind and training my body to get better and stronger, to fight these problems that the Liberal government and income support and landlord Tenedac and slum, slum landlords had put me to. And my goal is to make these promises to these people, Paddy, that I had made over the year. And here I am stuck again, Paddy, in another slum landlord's property, a building here in Victoria, NM. I asked the government to look at us here again with no results. Every member that I called in the Liberals, every one of them, including Tom Osmond's office, told me there's nothing they could do for me because I was being investigated, left me to die in Carbonair Motel for the benefit of their things. There's things that I requested a letter from a member of income support from the investigator. The letter that was sent to me was false. Names on it was done wrong. I called the Premier this morning and called it dead. I will be highlighting these notes and every picture and documents that I got petty since then. I will have them sent to you so you can read over and see exactly the truth, what really happened to me, and proof of everything that I'm saying. Yeah, please do. So where are you today, Thomas? Where are you living? Right now, Paddy, I'm living in the old station lounge in Victoria, NL. And the people here have become my family. They're looking out for me. Excuse me, Paddy. You take your time. No problem. They're looking out for me. They're feeding me. They're making sure that I'm in good health. Like I'll show Newfoundlanders do. Thomas, I'll let you catch your breath here uh, for a second. So, you know, the the entire system of social assistance, and I think sometimes people overestimate just how many recipients there are in the province. It's come down right. over the years, but what we need to understand is, you know, there's got to be a conversation about how and why people find themselves on social assistance. If you've run into an illness which keeps you from working all your life, as you said you have since the age of 16, then we just got to figure it out. Even when we tried to break down some of the issues regarding access to healthy foods in the nutritious food basket numbers, on social assistance, even even in the least expensive part of the province here in eastern Newfoundland, people are spending about 80% of the money's coming in the door on food and food alone. That doesn't leave a whole lot for everything else under the sun because food's not the only bill we all have. So we've got to figure out how that system works, where it's broken, because it hasn't been tweaked as far as I can understand, any you know measurable tweak in quite a long time. So yeah, we've got to talk about how people find themselves on social assistance and to try to find ways to, to keep people uh, off these programs. But the social safety it has been an important part of Canadian living. So I'm not trying to, this is not about you, this is about the system at large as I let you catch your breath here. So for people who are on it, like you, and struggling mightily like you are, there has got to be a better way. 
Yes, there's going to be conversations about people need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, which doesn't make sense physically. But, you know, people have to do what they have to do to be healthy and happy and have shelter and food and medicine. But it's not as simple as that for a lot of people in this country. So, Thomas, if you're ready to keep going here, you go right ahead, sir. Yes, Patty, and you are so right of everything that you just said. But the thing is, Patty, by me calling the Premier's office more than one time, frozen my house, asking for home heating fuel so I can stay warm. I was told there's nothing they could do. Not a thing. And to continue on this story, I think I'd like to leave it at this right now because I got a lot of things that's coming your way and coming to the national TV for all of the province and all around the world to see of the things that I know that has been taken away from Newfoundlanders by the merchants and the Liberal governments. And I will be calling your radio station, if I'm welcome, with all of these issues and watch TV in time, the proper time, the proper place, with the proper person by my side. These issues will be broadcast all around the world to show how hard I fought to make my life so I could live a, a better life for me, my family, and I want my grandkids and their kids live in Newfoundland and not be forced off our wallet. And Patty, this is my goal that I promised the senior citizens of Newfoundland, and I keep in my promise, Patty. I'm not looking back. Thomas, if there's anything that you think we might be able to do to help you out, I'm, I'm pleased to know that the owners of the Old Station Lounge are looking out for you, but it shouldn't be reliant on compassionate, heartfelt by people in the community to exactly. to play the role that there's other entities, notably government, are there to play. So feel free to send along whatever you think will be helpful for me, any background information, anything you want to send, period. And we're happy to have you on the show. And please do let me and Dave know if there's something specifically that you think we might be able to do to help you out. And if we can, we'll try. I appreciate that, Patty. The last thing I want to say before I leave. Of the people in the station lounge or the old station lounge in Victoria. Thank you for being there for me. Thomas, you you take good care of yourself. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Bye-bye. You know, it's a terrible story. Awful circumstances. Quite often, when somebody calls, and this, I'm going to separate this comment from Thomas's predicament, is... You know, I think the last number I saw, somewhere around 30,000 social assistance recipients in the province. And, you know, there has been a cyclical issue where if you grow up in a household where the family was on social assistance, the likelihood of you to find yourself in that lot in life when you become an adult is it's a real issue. But, and, you know, people ask me every time when someone calls like that is, why don't you ask them why, why they don't work? And Thomas is a senior who has worked all his life and now finds himself ill. So there will indeed be absolutely 100% legitimate reasons why some people have to rely on the social safety net. Now, are there examples of people who could indeed be doing more for themselves, uh, collecting a social assistance check? The answer is yes. And that's not to be cruel. That's just be realistic. So... It's just very much akin to the conversation I'm trying to have about what it means in the K-12 system for those who are chronically absent from school. We don't know why they're not in school. We don't know what becomes of them after they uh, leave the school system because we know 75% of those chronically absent in grade 6 never graduate high school. 
So as much as we need to understand why they're not in school, what happens to them, I think we need to have a better understanding of individuals who find themselves reliant on any social programs. It's not a bad thing to need help because that's part of the actual fabric of the country, but not knowing why just leaves a lot of gaps in the system. So while we try to restructure or, or have a better understanding of social assistance and a better way to do things in this country and in this province, you know, without understanding who these people are, who people are, it just becomes the black and white of words on a piece of paper. And of course, public policy will always at some point at the end of the conversation become a written document, legislation and public policy. But without understanding the personal implications, and who people are, where they are, and how they find themselves uh, requiring the help of the government, then we probably do a poor job of crafting any policy, any legislation. Let's take a break. There's uh, someone wrote an email just on the corner of my eye asking me, why are you not talking about this? Look, again, the topic can be entirely up to you, right? That's the actual beauty uh, of the program. And I was asked why I'm not talking about the prime minister's careful political calculation to take people's eye off the prize, whether it be by housing or food or anything else under the sun, with the release of information, the what he calls uh, credible allegations coming from intelligence gathering at CSIS about the accusation that the Indian government, through their agents, assassinated Hardeep Singh Nijar, uh, in June, on the 18th of June, outside a Sikh temple in British Columbia. Of course, the Indians have designated him a terrorist back in 2020, links to the old Khalistani Tiger Force, looking for an independent Punjab region of India. The fact of the matter is, when the story broke, we talked about it, like yesterday. And, you know, with the Prime Minister, whether it be political calculation, everything in politics comes with a timing calculation, but where I'm confused about some of the pushback on this is that Canadians were rightfully concerned when we didn't know more about who knew what when regarding foreign interference into our elections, not only in 2019 and 2021, but it's been happening for quite a long time. And it's not just China. It's been a variety of rogue actors. So are we actually saying now that we prefer he sat on this? I mean, apparently had already briefed our allies, apparently had uh, dealt with the Indians. And of course, the relationship is obviously going to be strained. And even furthermore, now, after this allegation has been made publicly, but which one is it? Did we want information about China and elections prior to when we got it and leaked, uh, leaked sources into the media? Where that's how we all found out. Or do we want people to be honest and share as much as we possibly can with intelligence gathering, which, of course, is very sensitive. So which one is it? We want the info or we don't want the info. Let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. We're anticipating a conversation with Dr. Sean Connors, of course, cardiologist here in the province. Uh, and this is all about the Wellbeing Week initiative. And of course, it's just in an effort to share information. But one, in, and one announcement made yesterday is about the creation of a digital physical activity kit. Okay, so it's for healthcare providers. They're hoping that can lead to widespread changes. And they're talking about it being another tool in the tool belt or the toolbox for our healthcare providers. My initial thought was, okay, you know, anything that can be helpful can be potentially utilized. But for healthcare providers who are strained, to say the very least, with their time and their patient load and caseload, where do they put this into the actual time they have per patient? Because we know what it's like. You know, there will indeed be a conversation between yourself and your family doctor in particular, if you're lucky enough to have one, about some of the uh, 
things that you can take control of yourself without pharmaceutical intervention or medical procedures or what have you. So, okay, fair enough that this has been created. But my question for doctors would be exactly how are they going to find the time to further incorporate more tools? Yes, there's always part of a, a visit with your doctor about your overall health and what have you and how you can be healthier, whether it be through diet or lifestyle or whatever the case may be. But you want to chime in on that. Let's do it. I read a terrific story. Uh, you know, with the concept of ageism, when people get into their senior years, or whether it be with the cost of living and they want to possibly get back in the workforce, and we know that in general terms, private sector employers are hesitant sometimes maybe far too often, to hire a senior. Whether it be because they worry about, you know, potential health implications or whether or not they're up to the technical savvy standards that many employers rely on. When in fact, their lifetime of experience should not mean they're unhirable. It should be the exact opposite. So this is a story about a lady from Prince Edward Island. Her name is Olive Branton, or, yeah, Branton. She's 81 years old. She's back in school pursuing her Ph.D., so she was looking for uh, candidates to be part of her research study, and this is about senior women with their ability to stay in the communities that they were born and raised in and they raised their family in, and yes, the opportunity to get back in the workforce. I'm actually going to see if I can reach out and connect with Olive Branch and the PEI to talk about it. Just imagine, at the age of 76, 76 decides, I'm going back to university, which she is now, right now, at the University of PEI, getting a PhD. So it's an extraordinary story. But for folks, you know, the, the whole thread here is uh, uh, it's called uh, Never Too Old. And that's exactly what Olive Branson is talking about. Okay. As anticipated, joining us on line number one is the Clinical Chief of Cardiac Care. That's Dr. Sean Connors. Good morning, Dr. Connors. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, you know, inside of your world, you're very much part of the, the solution after we fall ill. How do you craft messages inside your own discipline about whether it be about social determinants of health or what have you, or hopefully, other than in a, a social setting, we don't have to ever see you or meet you? Patty, you know, you, uh, as, t as usual, you have managed to grasp the, really, at the heart of the issue, so to speak. You know, I think about it in my head. And I think about, you know, you know, nobody thanks you, Patty, for the heart attack they didn't have. So, so we're great. We spend all our days, as I tell people on our team, we, we put our heart into fixing yours. When it's broken, we do a great job. We want people to feel comfortable and confident that they get world-class care. And, and I, I truly believe that they do. But if we want to, and as the Premier pointed out in Wellbeing, Wellbeing Week, to become the healthiest province by 2031, we, we've got to do more than build more operating rooms, build more hospitals, build more procedures, get rid of our surgical wait lists. So they're important things. But if we want to get to the people that haven't had their heart attack yet, that is what will determine whether we become the healthiest province by 2031. That's the challenge. When, you know, sometimes the, the hardest step towards being healthier is actually the first step. So, you know, there's a combination between diet and sedentary lifestyle, what have you. But if you wanted to, and I, I know we have to do all these things concurrently, and I'm not preaching because I could and should be healthier. So is there such thing as a hierarchy of concerns, things that will be really impactful for positive health and positive health outcomes? Where do you start? Well, Patty, I think, first of all, people need to realize that, you know, being healthier shouldn't be a hardship, right? Uh, you know, it, it's also something that we can't leave up to somebody else. It's something that we have to do. 
and if we look around this province that we have, there's there's tremendous things here. Like we're we have great walking trails. We have access to wonderful local foods, diet. You know, we we can we can make small changes that make a big difference. And and you know, when we look across the country, yes, everybody talks about report cards where we're ninth or tenth last in the country in terms of heart attack, stroke, and cancer. But we're also re- rank really highly in things like sense of community, belonging. You know, look at 9-11. Look what Gander did back then. Like, we can come together as a people. And so oftentimes we score the best in the country about our own sense of well-being. But we need to extend those strengths that we have to things like, okay, well, you know, I need to do something for me. I need to get out. I need to take a walk. Maybe I need to think about my diet a little bit. You don't need to turn your life upside down. There are things that you can do that will change your health, change it much more than we can change in a hospital because, as you mentioned, social determinants of health have a far greater influence on your health than what we do. And, you know, um, you may recall Dr. Eric Stone, our retired chief of uh, cardiac care years ago, and he always said, Patty, that, you know, we're too busy cutting wood to sharpen our axes. And that always has stuck with me, right? We we get into this uh, mindset of, we've, you know, we've got to, uh, if there's always a sense of, you know, the house is burning down, let's go and we put out a fire. It's, it's not more fire trucks that we need, although we're very good at doing that, is to let's not have the fire in the first place. Let's do something to fireproof that house. Let's do something to make you a little bit healthier. Make people be aware of their health. And this is something that we all have to take responsibility for. We've got lots of things in this province to help us with. We need to to be mindful of that. And I think that's the purpose of this week, right? The the well-being well-being week that's been announced. Like maybe we should take this week to be a bit more aware of our own health. Because my goodness, we don't want to wait until we've had a heart attack or a stroke or some other event until we start to think about our health. It's time to do it before that. It's not an easy challenge but it's one that I want to put out there for everybody. I'm trying to take up the challenge and maybe not as successfully as it should be, but, you know, I have to be mindful. I'm getting at that age now where it becomes more a daily concern than maybe it was in years past. So, and hopefully this message resonates with the people of the province, not in the form of being preached at or spoken at, but, you know, talking about the reality of some of the things we could do for ourselves and I need to do better. And I'll, I'll admit that publicly. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a couple of very specific cardiac questions. You know, people have been talking about ways Listen, you know, we brought took our orthopedic surgeries to St. Anthony, now expanded to Carbonair, maybe into Gander. It's a different kettle of fish in cardiac care, but the wait list was extraordinary. And I've, I've thought, I've even heard you say that, you know, we need to chip away at it as quickly as possible. Welcoming surgeons from Ontario, I think Ottawa specifically, in the relationship that we have with that particular cardiac care clinic. Where are we on the wait list? Well, you know, Patty, I think that, um, that, that we've made tremendous inroads. We're not where we want to be yet. I don't think any jurisdiction in Canada is where they want to be yet. But we've been very innovative in our approaches. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there's some very specific good news. I can tell you that in terms of cardiac surgery, because I, if I was waiting on a cardiac surgery wait list, I'd be very concerned that I was on a wait list. So, so we have partnered with the Ottawa Heart Institute. Like, we have a great partnership where people go back and forth. And I can tell you because those surgeons that have come here and they've seen the kind of people we are, the kind of teams that we have, the kind of intent that the government has to transform and even announce the building of a cardiovascular institute. We just recently, in the last few weeks, 
signed on. He's formally signed a chief, uh, one of the best cardiac surgeons in the world, a chief to come here permanently and, and be part of our team to help people. That will allow us to improve our capacity. We do over 500 cardiac surgeries a year. We want to go to 700, maybe 800. We don't want people on that list for their heart surgery not to have a date and have a time and know what they're going to be cared for. So, so we've built capacity. Sometimes we've sent people out to other spots. If we feel that they're waiting too long, we've expanded our capacity by finding a route where we can send them to Ottawa. They've been tremendous partners. And it's not just having them come here. Listen, they, they see what we do here. They want to come here themselves. Like, like, I keep saying that we might be small as a province, but, you know, we're smart, we're nimble, and we offer great care. And I think that that's been seen across the country. What kind of cardiac care will be present in the new Western Memorial Hospital when it opens? Well, you know what? Um, we want... Um, so right now, through the, the Health Accord initially and then now through NL Health Services, we... We've established cardiovascular care as a provincial program, and that has allowed us to then, you know, make the care in Western Health to be extension to be an extension of the care that we offer in, in the Eastern Zone. Our goal is to make everybody have the same standard of care across this province. That's something that we could never do when we are isolated in silos and different health authorities, or not nearly be able to do it as easily. And so that's a tremendous opportunity. I've already engaged with Western Health, sat down with their chief of medicine out there, spoken with them. And, you know, there's opportunities, there's challenges, but we have a new blank canvas now in front of us to be able to improve the things that we can offer in Western. They will be an extension of what we can offer here. Dr. Connors, I really appreciate your time this morning, and I hope you don't mind, but on a personal note, I want to congratulate your daughter, Maggie, not only for exploits as an NCAA hockey player at, the univer at Princeton University, but also selected in the Professional Women's Hockey League draft by Toronto. I give so some idea how Maggie's reacting to this cool news. Oh, Patty, you're, you're kind to ask. i got to tell you, you know, I, you know so... So we've always been used to wa to watching men be drafted, boys, young men get drafted in the NHL. It's a huge thing. The women's game has always not had that, right? They've lacked that piece. They had the Olympics with tremendous viewership and so on. And now for the first time, and I wasn't there. My wife was there at the draft. Maggie sat in the audience. They had it set up. It was very professionally done. But to see a woman walk across the stage in a draft system and allow her to commit to, to women's hockey at the very highest level so that they can perform now an arena between the Olympics, right, to improve the game, to model the game, to grow the game and for young girls to see this. Look, she's over the moon. Uh, I never thought that I'd see, you know, Maggie started off, I don't know, she was three or four, and to a point where she was in a women's professional draft and walking across. And now I being drafted for Toronto, I don't know that uh, playing hockey in that, in that place may be a curse, it may be a benefit, I don't know. But hopefully... <laughs> they perform well. Yeah, it's a bit of a media grinder, but I'm sure she's well prepared for not only the on-ice exploits, but dealing with the Toronto media as well. I just wanted to sneak that in there. Please pass along my congratulations to her. Patty, thank, thanks for uh, chatting about healthcare. We're, we're proud of what we do, and uh, and I think that the one goal that I have is to make people come to the cardiovascular program confident that they're going to get great care. That's what we're all here for. And sometimes great care means having you think about what you need to think of so you don't end up with us. That's our challenge, and I think we need to be aware of that this week. I appreciate your time, Dr. Connors. Thank you. And thanks, Patty. Take bye -bye. care. Bye-bye. Dr. Sean Connors. He's the clinical chief of cardiac care. Let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of show left for you. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Vice President of Atlantic for the Convenience Industry Council of Canada. That's Michael Hammond. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? Very well this morning. Thanks. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for asking. I've just had a brief opportunity to scan the executive summary regarding illegal contraband tobacco. The numbers are staggering. Where do we start? Well, actually, let's start with the amount of lost revenue to the provinces of BC, Ontario, and Newfoundland. Yeah, if we take a look at uh, uh, Newfoundland, uh, where we are right now, um, the numbers are staggering. It's uh, it's about $40 million. It's $81 million over the last three years, but could be as high as $40 million over the last year. And in combination, BC, Ontario, Newfoundland and Labrador, $2.47 billion in lost tax revenue between 19 and 2022. So when tracking, you know, the rates or the numbers of people smoking, they cannot be anywhere near reflective of the reality on the ground. If legal sales drop by 49.5% in this province alone, we really are misleading ourselves with what's actually happening. Yeah, it's a little scary. I mean, you take a look at those numbers and you you take an organization like EY, Ernst & Young, who are pretty credible, and for them to come up with that report, uh, it kind of surprised us a little bit, too, to be honest. We we, we knew the market was large, but we had no, no idea that it could be as big as it is. What do we know about who's behind it? Because, you know, issues regarding stereotypical issues that's coming from uh, Indian reserves, what have you, there's also an organized criminal element to it. So what do we know about where the illegal contraband is coming from? Well, yeah, according to law enforcement agencies and the RCMP, I mean, they, they previously noted multiple times that organized crime groups are leading this. And you take a look at the bus recently in, in Newfoundland and Labrador, September 18th in Bell Island, you know, two people arrested and they've got drugs, contraband, cigarettes, cash, gun. Uh, September 15th at Goose Cove and you got drugs again, cash, contraband, cigarettes. Uh, August 31st, you'll Bunyan's Cove and you'll see the consistency of drugs, cash, contraband, tobacco. They're all related. It's all together. With organized crime, you know, you'll step back and think about the role they play in illicit drugs, for instance. What does profitability look like for organized criminals with uh, illegal contraband tobacco compared to some of the other things that we think they're intimately involved with, cocaine, for instance? Yeah, it's like uh, contraband tobacco is actually eight times more profitable than the sale of cocaine and fentanyl. It's remarkable. So, you know, we need to know why there aren't more seizures, possibly, but there's also a reference to the confusing legal framework. Break that down for me. Uh, Say that again? You know, we need to know why not more seizures and the lost tax revenue and the reflection of knowing how many people are smoking, but there's also reference in the executive summary to what's called a confusing legal framework that exists for the manufacturing sale of cigarettes on First Nation reserves. Break that down for me a little further. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge that we probably face today is that most of this is considered a victimless crime. So uh, I would say the majority of those that are purchasing this product don't really think that they're doing anything illegal and that they're legally purchasing the product when, in fact, it is all illegal. And so that being said, what needs to change uh, from the federal government perspective? I think we've got to create a little more awareness. Uh, I think what we really kind of need to do here is create uh, 
some more maybe advertising. We got to increase the police enforcement. We've got to increase public awareness of contraband tobacco. And we've got to have some sort of a federal provincial coordination here. And, and I think if we can allow local police to keep fines and disposal of assets seized and proceeds of crime, whereas right now they don't get to keep that, they could probably use that to, to fight this locally. You know, I had no earthly idea that it was as big a deal as this. I remember when we were young that you would see people going around smoking cigarettes that didn't have the tax sticker on them. And you knew full well they were bought out of the back of the van behind some building. And we knew at that point that was going on. Reading the report today, I simply can't believe the amount of lost tax revenue. And I wonder what the awareness, not only for the general public, but the awareness inside law enforcement. Do we have any understanding or conversation with law enforcement agencies and the priority that they give to something? like this because we see lots of gun seizures and illicit drug seizures what have you what do we know about law enforcement's priority regarding illegal contraband tobacco yeah i mean it's probably a question for them but i think from our conversations unfortunately when you take a look at law enforcement like the rcmp who are kind of basically operating at about 60 percent of capacity things are a little tougher today to get the people um, I would say that contraband tobacco is probably not even in the top 10 of, uh, of things that they kind of are focused on. And it's unfortunate. You know, the, the conversation surrounding other contraband and drugs, what have you, it gets derailed by politics versus policy sometimes. So if you had your druthers, where do we start? You know, basic understanding in the general public, a better understanding at the government uh, level, better understanding at law enforcement level. Is there anything else we should factor into how we think about this lost revenue and the drop in legal sales? Or what, what's your final thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, if we could... Um you know, have some coordination between the industries and law enforcement and government uh, to figure out a way to combat this. Because I, I think the struggle that we're facing today is that all of this is happening in plain sight, all of it, and nothing really is being done to to stop it. And there are a lot of you know issues that are tied to it that I think that we need to find a way to work through. So I, I guess my ask would be, you know, working with the federal and provincial governments in coordination with law enforcement. I think would be the first step and probably some sort of an education campaign uh, nationally and provincially. Michael, do you happen to know, and of course this is not in your immediate crosshairs or purview, but do we happen to know what the penalties are for being caught with illegal contraband tobacco and or uh, distributing it? Um, they're not very, very high. Um, I think there's a fine tied to it that most people don't pay. Um, you could have your vehicle seized, and I think most vehicles are stolen. I think the, the struggle and the issue is is that those that get caught are typically back on the street again doing the same thing. And I think that's probably part of the issue. If we could maybe change the criminal code penalties, make it similar to, uh, to, to drugs, I think would go a long way to stopping people from, uh, you know, from doing it. Because when we hear the stories of someone pulled over owing X amount in fines to the government, people often, I would imagine, think, well, that's all in driving-related fines, contravention of the uh, Highway Traffic Act, but it absolutely includes fines for contraband illegal tobacco. There's no doubt. Uh, Michael, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for this. Thank you, Patty. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. You take good care. Stay in touch. You too. Bye -bye. Uh, Michael Hammond, VP Atlantic for the Convenience Industry Council of Canada. Before we get to the news, let's go to line five. Kathy, you're on the air. Hi, Kathy. Hi there. 
Yes, yes, Penny, thank you very much. I have a little short message now about my little cat that's been missing. It's a small, black, full-grown, bobtailed female cat, answers to the name Bobby, missing since Saturday in Carbonier in the vicinity of Caldora Place in Powers Lane, which is near Carbonier Hospital. There's no collar on the cat because I believe let the little animal out around because we're in a rural place. And she visits various neighbors, especially people with children, and I'm quite used to that over the last two years. And she has her freedom, but she hasn't come back this time. And she's been missing since Saturday, and I'm wondering if she's into one of the houses around. And people might think that she's a stray cat, but she's not. Describe the cat one more time, Kathy. It's a small, full-grown female bobtail cat who answers to the name of Bobby, B-O-B-B-I-E. Very friendly, loves children and teenagers more than adults, will go into your house for a visit and probably stay there all day and all night and not come back to her owner the next day, which is me. She possibly thinks, you know, she's for a visit for a day or two, and someone might think she's a stray. This is how I raised her, to be outside, inside, friendly, watch for cars and trucks and everything. She's practically human, only she don't talk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, oh my. So... After her visit, if she could, she would say, thank you very much. And when she comes home after a day, she's not hungry or anything. And this is because the neighbors all love her so much, especially the children and the elderly. Yes. Yeah, we have some uh, uh, outdoor cats in our neighborhood, which I really welcome the sight of, and they're all quite friendly, and I think they're probably helping our neighborhood with uh, the uh, rodent population. Uh, uh, Kathy, uh, you want to give out your... Wonderful hunter, wonderful hunter, and if you could do a little program, five or ten minutes sometime, on the value of having a pet, a pet, especially, uh, especially uh, older people. It brings down the blood pressure, and it uh, gives you a sense of caring for something and loving something that loves you. So if you could do that sometime, because you've got so many important things, much more important on the go, if you get a lull someday for five minutes or something, could you do a little program on pets and their value to everybody? Absolutely, and it's not unimportant because if it's someone to love who loves you back and makes you feel good about yourself and the way you take care of your pets, absolutely happy to talk about it and take calls like this. Kathy, you want to give out your number, or what do you want anyone to do if they have seen Bobby? Yes, Yes, you can have my number. Number yes six eight seven okay one five four three and Patty you're doing a wonderful job and especially uh, I was really touched by that gentleman was on earlier having all that problem in Victoria and if he needs anything uh, I have a friend who has uh, is getting rid of a lot of things because they're moving away like uh, bedding and uh, towels face cloths and all that kind of thing if he needs anything like that he can give me a call I'll pass that along to Thomas, and I appreciate this. Uh, Fingers crossed that Bobby's home soon. And thank you, Patty. You're wonderful. I appreciate the time, Kathy. Take good care and good luck. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, you know the deal. Time for you. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. 
Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this hour on line number three. Good morning, Simeon. You're on the air. Good morning, uh, Patty. How are you, Simeon? I'm fine. I'm fine. I just got back from the gathering site on Gall Island. There's uh, about 350 uh, annual tents have been set up there, like the annual gathering. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I just want to go back a little bit uh, the experience we have with uh, with mental health issue and also the suicides. I think uh, I uh, we lost every granddaughter back in December, and uh, it seems like there's no help for counseling like mental health. Like, uh, and then we uh, lost our son, uh, lost our uh, my father-in-law, my wife, my dad in back in Mar- in March, and then we lost again uh, our son, uh, the oldest son, in, in July 14 uh, this summer. And uh, and we've been struggling and uh, struggling with the uh, with the mental health issues issue and also we've been struggling with acute uh, post traumatic stress and also uh, the grief uh, we've been grieving and uh, we grieve in a very different way and uh, and and there is no it seems like there is no professional service and I hope uh, Premier of Newfoundland is something and he's a doctor. And he's supposed to be. Uh, I hope he's. Uh, he will respond my uh, my my, uh, my cry for help for the young people and also the the parents and 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 furthermore to add uh, more more stress like uh, child and family services. Uh, they've been apprehending young kids and but there is no help uh, whatsoever when the when the child has been apprehended and um, there is no counseling, there's no working relationship and and, the, and I'm sure the department will tell you we've been working with you know parents. Well that's that's not that's not the fact. The fact is that there, there is no working relationship, there is no communication and I can tell you why I said that you know, when Sandra heard my son was out in West Regina under the Child Your Family Services, uh, Child Welfare Act, if I'm Child Welfare Act, he was apprehended, he was in the custody and he was really beaten up in, in while he was in, 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 in the care. Uh, one of the staff banged his head to the concrete wall and he rushed to the hospital, which that, that's going to come out during inquiry. Hopefully that'll be in January. I'll have my time and say, and I'll have, and I'll have to ask a very tough question is what happened to our son, son and uh, why he was beat up uh, while he was in care. Uh, it, it, uh, the, the act supposed to protect the children, not beat him up, you know, and, and kill them. And then a lot of a lot of young people uh, are going through that same process. What my son did, they gave him, they prescribed him antidepressants, and they destroyed him. And they destroy families. They don't uh, they don't provide help. After we lost our son, Sunday hard by suicide, we never been been approached by the department saying, Simeon. Uh, do you, what kind of help do you need from us? What kind of counseling do you need us? What kind of mental health do you need us? That is not whatsoever, but that is a bold, uh, bold act and uh, and destroying us. They, they, they mislead the, uh, the public, they mislead the parents, uh, and all they do is hurt hurt the parents mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And that's, and that's a fact. And, and I'm a proven living uh, human being, what I went through. And... Uh, and the the suicide rate is alarming, scaring us, and we we must have buried people at least fifteen within 
two months or three months, and some the premier or, or prime minister, Yvonne Jones, whoever is listening, and whoever is the district in Labrador, um, RMHA will. I know uh, if I, Evan Riala uh, Evans will will ask questions because he somebody needs to fly in the Nabushish, somebody needs to fly uh, go into Shihadi and look at the stats. How many children, how many young people took their own lives within five months? You're going to be surprised if it's the numbers. I hear the numbers, and they're absolutely staggering. And this is yeah. not formal professional health care professionals available, but there are some pretty helpful support groups out there that might be of yeah. benefit to you, Simeon. Like, for instance, Tina Davies uh, with the Richards Legacy Foundation. I've had yeah. Tina on the program. I have contact information for her if you'd like to yeah. take that step. Yes, can uh, Dave uh, text me the phone, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the information so I can uh, have it. I don't have a pen with me while I'm talking. And, uh, I'm in Goose Bay. I'm, I just came back from Gulf Island. I'm on the way to take a shower and get a few things. And then, you know, it, it's really scary. And, and, uh, and people don't know, the young people don't know where to turn to. And I know my son had a family relationship with his common law wife but he turned to alcohol he turned to drugs and he and he drank himself to death and uh, because there is no help uh, whatsoever people are we have staff you know but they are not professionals they are not well trained all they do is self-serving themselves uh, you know like walking expeditions retreats themselves but and and the real problem, the, the problem I see, I'm not contra- being contrary, I'm not being targeting anybody. All I'm saying is got something needs to be done about the suicide rate and the, the amount of deaths we have in Chad and Narashi, back and forth, buried after buried. And, and that's something is really wrong. And, and it's alarming. And and I am scared. I am really scared because uh, I was talking to my brother-in-law at the goal line. He said, oh, my God, he said, there's so many suicide attempts in Nalashis, which nobody talks about. And I know it's a very sensitive issue, but it, it, needs to be, it needs to be out in the open. The premier and the prime minister and the health officials and bureaucrats and the bureaucracy has to step in and, and, and look at the stats. Come to our communities, look at the stats, look, go to the clinics. How many medevacs have been flying the kids, uh, young girls have been taking OD on, on prescription, prescription uh, pills? You know, it's alarming, and it's something that needs to be done. And I know they're going to say we've been pouring monies into uh, into both communities. There is a help available, but it's not. There is no psychologist, but I know there is some help in St. John's. But that's that's very, very, very costly uh, to travel. I mean, look at me, prime example. When I try to get access to the proper health care, I have to leave from Seattle and drive to St. John's in order for me to access the proper health care and a proper assessment. And that's what I've been doing for the last few years. And that's, I mean, if it don't work, and I mean, you might as well die. And that's, and that's the fact. Simeon, I'm going to text Dave the information, the contact number and an email address for Tina, and uh, he should send that along to you soon when he gets a moment. And uh, let me know if, the, if that's of any help to you, and I appreciate your time. I wish you well. 
Yeah, thank you very much for giving me the time for the year, and I hope Premier and Prime Minister and Devon Jones act right away because it, it's alarming and it's scary, and people and people are struggling with grief and it's mental health issues need to be dealt with, and rather than gonna, young people going to the alcohol and drugs, and that's and the trend is going to continue. It's something that has not been done. Thank you, Simeon. Good luck. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Dave, I did text you that info if you want to relay it down to Simeon. Let's take a break. Yesterday we had a couple of calls about the reopened uh, fish plant, a crab processing facility on St. Mary's, and the cap on the tonnage they're able to process. They were able to get some overflow crab to top off ours. They did really quite well this year. I think they were capped off at 2.5 million. But there's, you know, there's a total allowable catch issue. So we had a call from Mayor Steve Ryan out in St. Mary's and uh, Mayor Verna Hayward and Peters River. So I think that's going to be the reference to uh, our next caller right after the break. And that's Ryan Cleary, the executive director at CNL. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the executive director at CNL. That's Ryan Cleary. Good morning, Ryan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Do you and your listeners? Thanks for taking the call. Sir. Happy to do it. Patty, like you said before the break, I'm calling about yesterday's calls about the snow crab plant in um, St. Mary's, and in particular the call from the mayor, uh, the call from the mayor of St. Mary's, Stephen Ryan. Just so we're all on the same page in terms of background, in April last year, the Fish Processing Licensing Board, they recommended St. Mary's Bay Fisheries be issued a crab processing license. The licensing board took a look at the health of the crab stock. They noted that the outlook is positive for the next few years. The board took a look at the growing quota in 3PS, that's the fishing zone off the south coast. And based on all of that, Patty, the board recommended a crab processing license for St. Mary's the board said it liked the fact the company is a small to medium-sized operation. There aren't enough of them, as you know, Patty, in our commercial fisheries. My reason for calling today, Patty, is to support the mayor, Stephen Ryan, and St. Mary's. I don't call every day to indirectly support a processing company, so, so let me explain. When the board recommended the crab license for St. Mary's, they didn't say anything about a cap on how much crab the plant could process, but... When Derek Bragg, the minister of the day, when he approved the St. Mary's license, he capped the amount of crab at 2.5 million pounds. Now, Stephen Ryan said on your show that that decision was political. And, Patty, I agree with him 100 percent. The result of that 2.5 million pound cap was that the St. Mary's crab plant stopped working on the Canada Day weekend uh, when, the, when they hit the cap. And like you said before the break, uh, they got some overruns from, from other plants uh, and between the jigs and the reels, um, the St. Mary's plant, um, it stopped working with three weeks left in the season. Now, here's what gets me, Patty. Our licensed fishermen this year were subject to trip limits and fishing schedules this season like never before. They were told when to fish, how much to fish, because the existing crab plants could not handle the amount of crab coming in. They had to slow down, slow down the amount that was landed. And then there were also reports this, this season, Patty, for your information of you and your listeners, of hundreds of thousands of pounds of crab being spoiled, being dumped, because plants couldn't handle the crab. So at the same time, we had a plant in St. Mary's that could ha that could have handled six, seven, or eight million pounds more and didn't. So what I'm building up to is a question for the province. Why the Andrew Fury government kept the cap on the amount of crab St. Mary's could process 
when lifting the cap could have eased the pressure, eased the heat on the plants and the fishermen. And we certainly wouldn't have been left with 8 million pounds of quota this season left in the water. I, I don't need to tell you, Patty, how much that crab could have, could have been used given the drop in crab price, the severe drop in crab price, and the EI changes. So from my perspective, the problem that the province should be made to explain itself. Why did they keep the cap on the on St. Mary's on the St. Mary's operation this summer, when lifting the cap could have eased the pressure on existing processing plants and the inshore fleet? My question for the province. A, a final point, then, Patty. I'll, I'll come right to it. I would recommend that 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 the cap on the St. Mary's plant be lifted moving forward. And this is another point that was made by Stephen Ryan yesterday. Royal Greenland or Quincy is owned by another country. They're not subject to a processing cap. But a small to medium-sized business here in Newfoundland and Labrador is subject to a cap. Patty, there's obviously something wrong with that picture. We need more competition in the processing sector. We need more independent players. We agree with Stephen Ryan that the fishery is run by a processing cartel that has more control over the inshore fleet than the Water Street merchants in days of old. And, Patty, it's a frightening amount of power, and even our politicians and the quarters of, uh, that had uh, infiltrated, even our politicians and the quarters of power in the Confederation building. Okay, I totally get all of that. And yes, absolutely more competition is good for every single industry. And yes, locally owned operations should be absolutely part of the priority list for tonnage that are able to process crab and otherwise. But when you have attack in place, how do you navigate who gets what? I mean, I do think it's distinctly unfair if there's a cap lifted for a big operation, but imposed on a smaller operation. But what's the formula to divvy up the total allowable catch? Because that's all that can come out of the water. That's all that can be processed. So how do you apply formula or a thought process to that, in your opinion? You mean divvying, divvying up the processing quota? Well, I mean, there's only so much that comes out of the water. So uh, my question is, how do we determine how much can go to any entity? Because every single plant will want to process as much as possible in the facility and their capacity well you got 54,000 tons of quota this year 121 million pounds you have a, a few players in the processing sector uh, in a controlled industry um, no company should have it should be open competition it should be more processing com- uh, companies should be able to access that quota pay fishermen more for the quota have have uh, 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 cut into those trip limits in the fishing schedules uh, eliminate them as much as possible we need more competition uh, to, to go at to go at that amount of processing quota wide open Fair enough. It's obviously an issue between that and to somehow restructure the price-setting panel and process. Two things that can maybe see us avoid what was a very contentious and heated six-week standoff to get the crab season going this year. Add in the issue regarding employment insurance and the change to hours required and how they come up with the math of best best weeks worked. Uh, I appreciate the time, Ryan. Anything else? Yeah, Patty, just one last point. I heard uh, um, on the news uh, again um, about how the uh, the review panel looking at the uh, 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 processing uh, the, the the licensing system uh, it's actually it, it's looking for it for input but I made this point on your show last week I want to make it again today the province uh, has ordered a, a review of the price setting system but it continues to ignore the lack of competition in the processing sector and the grip that processors have over the inshore fleet that makes no sense it's not good enough patty this crisis that we have in the inshore fleet, it is a crisis. The inshore fleet is fading away. It will conti- it, it, this crisis will continue 
uh, for as long as this is ignored by the province. There's a massive elephant on the wharf, and that is the lack of competition. The province is ignoring that, and it's at the peril of the inshore fleet. And I'm sorry for sounding like a broken record, Patty, but it's the same message every time I call. Nothing is being done. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Betty. Take care. Bye-bye. Ryan Cleary, Executive executive Director at CNL. Let's go ahead and get a book recommendation. All right. Line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for an opportunity to bring this to your attention. I have a book here written by someone who uh, the public may recognize in St. John's and out in the Bonavista area. His name is Terry Kelleher. I don't know if you remember him. He was around in the local entertainment uh, community for several years. However, he's written a book, uh, Patty. It's called Troubleshoot. It's a um, a book, a true story, written about the uh, kidnapping and murder of two police officers in Moncton. Terry's been researching this book for several years and has done an excellent job of uh, putting it all together. It's a pretty comprehensive uh, oversight of the uh, the RCMP's investigation and the local uh, police uh, authorities in the Atlantic area. I was wondering, Patty, uh, I'd love to bring the book. I'd be more than willing to bring the book to VOCM, and I'd love for you to have a, a quick read. I'm sure you would find it extremely interesting. True story. And uh, I was just wondering if I was to drop it off at VOCM, if you could give it a quick read and maybe give it. Terry is not in great health. He maintains a residence here in Bonavista, but he's now, uh, oh, excuse me, he's now in Ontario. He's not in uh, really great health and won't be able, I don't think, to make it here to do like a book signing or whatever. But uh, I'd really appreciate it, and I'm sure he would, if you could, um, you know, give it a quick read, maybe give it a shout on air. And uh, what do you think about that? Well, if you drop it off, I will add it to my reading list, which is pretty extensive. Uh, I'm sure it must be. I'm, I'm sure it must be. This is, it's only 135 pages, and I'm sure once you pick it up, it will be difficult to put it down. I know I found it extremely interesting, especially considering the local content and whatever. Absolutely. So, and I'm familiar with the story that he's writing about. I'm more familiar with Terry as a folk singer. So yes, of if, if yes. you get that to me, I will put it on my list and eventually I will get to it and I will read That'd it. That would be wonderful, Patty. I really appreciate that. I'll drop it off at uh, VLCM there later on today. Thank you very much for that and I'm sure Terry appreciates the recommendation you're offering here this morning. I'm sure he will and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Thanks again, Patty. My pleasure. Bye bye. All right, there we go. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, John, you're next. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number one. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I just wanted to get some information on, if I can, on on the vaccine that's coming out. I heard that the vaccines, uh, the the ones for the COVID and also the flu vaccines, are only half strength in this province compared to the rest of the provinces. I well. For starters, I don't know that to be true. To be honest, I'm not familiar with getting different doses because when they're ordered, we get, just like when we talked about personal protective equipment, we get it based on per capita numbers. So we get about 2% of the national load. And I had no idea yeah. that it was full load, half load, or what have you. I don't I don't know. Well, I phoned uh, the constituency officer, and he 
uh, give me a number for Western Health, 635-7830. And there was a, a lady come on there, not very friendly either. Uh, she don't know nothing about it. She said, we, we don't know, you know. She said, you take it, and I guess you take your chances, according to her. But it's not a chance I was taking. I was wanting to know why. Now, you can get, you can pay and get full strength in the flu shot. The other ones, I don't know. I can't find out nothing. I think it's probably better to uh, call public health, you know, Dr. Fitzgerald's office, because they'd be the ones that know about that type of information. I personally have no earthly idea. Uh, so that's what I would suggest if you get in contact with Dr. Fitzgerald's office, because, of course, they get their immunization advice from NACI, the national body, but they would absolutely know about uh, issues pertaining to the strength of the dose or what have you, because unfortunately, out of ignorance, I do not know. You wouldn't have Dr. Fitzgerald's office there, would you? Number? Uh, well, let's see if I can find a very specific number. I mean, the Department of Health and Community Services, I can have a... Da, 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 I got a number for them. And there's also a uh, healthcare email for a pretty all-encompassing piece of information. But I'll, you know, I'll give you two. The email address, which I think will also put you onto the right answer and the right person, is an easy one. It's called healthinfo at gov.nl.ca. So that's that one. And the Department of Health Community Services, the general number there, and they'll be able to put you on to public health. It's the area code 709-429-4984. Okay, sir. I thank you very much. I appreciate it. Let me know what you find out because I have no idea. Okay, and you'll have a good day. You too, John. All the best. Okay, then. Bye-bye. There are going to be lots of conversations. Look, the the issue regarding the virus and vaccination and public health policy, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's coming in the future. I do know we've seen stories about the prevalence of COVID in the community, even though it's hard to be really accurate because we don't really test anymore. You know, we do in healthcare settings, if you're admitted to hospital in some congregate living facilities and the like. But basically, folks are relying on wastewater testing. It seemed to have been pretty accurate in forecasting or predicting or understanding how prevalent it was. And the issue regarding vaccination, I can't foresee a day where anybody, certainly based on government intervention, is going to be mandated to take it. Now, again, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's coming. But I do know that that created a massive issue across the country. Absolutely enormous issues. So uh, anyway, let's keep going. Uh, let's see. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the ED at the Eating Disorder Foundation. That's Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? How bad, you? Not bad at all. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I'm going keep to it, keep it fairly brief this morning. I uh, just wanted to do a little update on our uh, Concert of Hope, uh, which is returning after a hiatus going back to 2018. Uh, featuring the Masterless Men and, and Friends on Saturday, October 21st. We're over the halfway mark with tickets sold, so uh, I guess I'm, what I'm saying to people is that tickets are selling every single day and rapidly, and uh, we'd uh, love to have a full house for that concert. Um, the um, Masterless Men have added some uh, some great young talent, some new talent, and the likes of uh, Katie Barber, Kelsey Arsenault, Jordan Young, and of course Scott Graham 
who has that Southern Shore connection and, of course, is formerly with Celtic Connection. So it's going to be a great night of entertainment, uh, emceed by uh, VOCM's own uh, Greg Smith, I might add. So um, appreciate it if people would uh, have a look at that and consider having a, a great night out with us at the Arts and Culture Centre. I've been there before, and a couple of fundraising initiatives brought forward by your organization. Always a good time. You know, I, I ask this, uh, whether it be on air or in social settings, you know, to people I know who are in the charitable sector or the not-for-profits, you know, talking about the difficulty with which, you know, not only fundraising in general terms, whether it be with concerts or dinners or auctions and the like, but even access to some uh, additional governmental supports, because we do know the work that your organization does and others like it, you know, the backfill they provide and relief uh, they offer to government is extraordinary, but it doesn't necessarily come commensurate with the amount of money that flows your way. How's fundraising going? Um, this year, Patty, I have to admit we're, uh, we've, we've had a, a, fairly, uh, a fairly good year so far. However, I'll say that by saying that we have added a number of activities and events, and uh, uh, it's increased our workload considerably. We've added our, our 50-50 sweeps, quarterly 50-50 sweeps. Our gala came back, and uh, thankfully, thanks to the business community, that came came back strong and of course having the concert back so we've we've returned to normal in the sense that we've got uh, most of our events are finally back on board since since covid i.e the concert and the gala our golf tournament uh, is uh, coming up next thursday and again the corporate response has been has been great so so far this year it's been a great year but in saying that uh, the need for programs and services and the costs to provide them is constantly increasing. So the funds are badly needed so that we can continue to do the work that uh, we believe uh, is important, particularly for the families, but also for the individuals who are dealing with eating disorders. And in fact, even for health professionals throughout the province, as we do provide training courses for them as well. So, so the need is great. Um, uh, the, the number of eating disorders is, is not declining by any stretch of the imagination. So we continue to have a big job to do. Uh, this is a question that I saw float into an email out of the corner of my eye. So when people think eating disorders, we're talking about anorexia, bulimia. I mean, I think that's where most people's minds go right away. This question is about those who are overweight or obese who might have an overeating disorder. Is that something that your organization deals with and talks about? Uh, I think more and more we are. Uh, I mean, in addition to anorexia and bulimia, I mean, there are a number of other identified eating disorders. Binge eating disorder, for example, is is considered a full-blown eating disorder with its own set of criteria. And that's probably the number of people suffering from binge eating disorder is probably larger than anorexia and bulimia put together. And this is an issue that requires um, a lot of medical intervention to uh, uh, for people to recover from this illness, particularly from the area of psychologists and dietitians, etc. And of course, the uh, the vacancies that we're seeing within the healthcare system in a number of those health professions is making it even more challenging. So it, it does come down to us to come up with at least some support services, and we are working on those. We're working on self-help manuals, and we're working on providing support as best we can for individuals with binge eating. Um, there are a couple of other illnesses that 
again, have slightly different criteria, but they are growing as well. Um, RFID, and unfortunately I don't have the, the exact definition of that right in front of me now, is another eating disorder illness that, uh, that comes to mind that's increasing. Uh, in the past, it's been diagnosed generally within the youth population, and it's dealt with through, uh, uh, through the adolescent medicine program. However, it's now being diagnosed within adults more frequently, and we don't have any services within the adult system to cover that. So, again, part of the effort, we continue to work with healthcare to to get the right services in place, but we understand the issues they're dealing with in terms of recruiting uh, health professionals to different positions. I appreciate that, and I'm glad I asked that question because I don't think I've ever broached that issue with you oh. in the past. For folks who want a ticket to the Concert of Hope, what do they need to do, Paul? All they need to do is either call the Arts and Culture Center, 709-729-3900. Uh, box office hours are Monday to Friday, 12 to 6. Or the easiest way is probably just go online, pick your seats, and uh, pay in the many number of ways that they offer. And I can tell you that all the funds that come from this concert, thanks to the support we have from the Masculous Men and the, and the great young groups who are joining them, will go towards providing the services to help defeat this very, very serious mental illness. Appreciate the time, Paul. Good luck with it all. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, bye-bye. That's all. Sorry about a little quick. Paul Toomey, Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation. It was an interesting question posed by Mike, one of the listeners uh, via email, is because I think maybe me as well, when you hear eating disorder, you automatically go to anorexia and bulimia. But of course, if, and Paul Toomey would know more about it than me, you know, if we talk about binge eating and overeating and that disorder, it's way bigger than both anorexia and bulimia uh, combined which is sort of staggering stuff. You know, the story that we heard coming from Holy Heart of Mary, where there was a 15-year-old arrested on a variety of weapons charges, and this one person who's kind of at me all the time about stuff was completely out of my control, asking why we haven't given out any details. You know, like who he is, where he's from, and all the details surrounding the specifics of the charges. Number one, sometimes that's difficult information to get. Number two, when we're talking about minors, it becomes almost impossible to get. You know, so I'm not afraid to try to dig up some information. But on that front, I, unless someone, you know, throughout the rumor mill on the street, we're not going to know who the person is. Certainly not going to be publicly released by the RNC. Why? Because there's distinct laws in place uh, regarding minors and their personal information criminal or otherwise. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, good opportunity for you to join us live on the program. If you're in and around town, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. Well, once again, via email, people asking why not talk about this or that. And again, phone call, certainly my preference. But this was about early childhood education and daycare spaces. This was a lady who's in her second trimester, and she's already put her name on a wait list based on some of the concerns she hears from some of her friends who are already parents and their babies are, of course, born and looking for daycare spaces. You know, when the province gives us updated numbers, for instance, they say that 8,300 childcare spaces at $10 a day or less across the province. What we have not included in those numbers and government did not include in the update they gave us is just about how many net added spaces there are in place. Childcare advocates are out there having careful evaluation of the numbers. They say it's fine to tell us that there's 
8,300 and plans to expand, you know, thousands of more uh, spaces for youth inside of early childhood education and the training and the pay grade for early childhood educators. But if we've only gained somewhere in the neighborhood of less than 300, then those numbers are a little bit misleading. And if you are in that age group where you've got, whether it be your son or daughter, uh, and their family's now pregnant or they have young children, you know, there's going to be more and more reliance on NAN and POP and unregulated spaces. So, yes, that's a conversation we absolutely can be having. Because when you're having to make a decision, whether it be to quit your job or to find a spot for your child, which is becoming extraordinarily difficult. We hear the stories of people on wait lists for years. So people will also add into it, you know, $10 a day shouldn't be on my back to support other people, other parents, because they're not my children. You should be responsible for your own. All that included, there's absolutely tons of evidence out there about what it means for the overall impact on positive positive impact on gdp so it it is absolutely good for all hands i don't have young kids i don't have any skin in the game my boys are in their 20s so it doesn't benefit me directly but indirectly it absolutely does so we've heard the government talk about ensuring that there's more and more early childhood educators to absolutely make it available to uh, create the additional spaces that we do absolutely need so what they're saying now this was announcement coming back on tuesday about ECE recruitment and retention grant. So they say they're replacing the Early Childhood Education Graduate Bursary Grant or program and gives level one to four educators who qualify up to $2,500 once they become certified. And the certification comes through the Association of Early Childhood Educators of Newfoundland and Labrador. Additionally, educators would also receive $2,500 more when they, recent, when they recertify themselves with the association three years later and another $2,500 three years after that. $2,500 sounds like a decent chunk of change, but inside the world of three-year gaps, $2,500 comes down to about 60-ish bucks a month. Not necessarily that type of incentive to entice people to get back into or to enter into that field. Now, we've expanded the number of seats and training opportunities for early childhood educators. All very good stuff, but just simply saying 8,300 spaces... It doesn't really reflect the fact that while we're adding spaces, we're losing spaces. So that's got to be factored in. In addition to that, to help us gauge whether or not incentives for early childhood educators, creation of additional spaces is working the way we all hope it does, what we don't know, and it might be somewhat complicated to get this number as accurately as we deserve, but we don't know about what the actual demand is. So that's the key for all of that, insofar as my opinion goes. We can talk about spaces and ECEs, but if we don't even know what the demand is, how can we possibly measure whether or not we're on the right track, whether or not the incentives and the other policies are, are actually working? If you don't know the demand, you don't know whether or not we're having any luck. Also coming up uh, after the 11 o'clock news, we've got some time with uh, the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey. There's a recent court ruling that came down regarding the fact that the commissioner will no longer be able to demand to see certain records. There's long been a concern when government simply labels uh, a document as part of solicitor-client privilege. We've got to make sure that we can't have that as the be-all and end-all without the Privacy Commissioner getting a look at it to see whether or not that tag is applicable or not so you know if we look back historically 
and look at what was once the progressive conservative government and the real unraveling there wasn't necessarily anything to do with Muskrat because Muskrat was already sanctioned when they ran and won again. What really started to erode public support for the party, I would suggest, was the Access to Information Act, Bill C-69. You know, being told that there's far too many frivolous or vexatious requests for info. Now, some absolutely may fall into that category, but certainly not all, as was portrayed by the then PC government. It really did lead to their demise as holding the seat of government. So the liberals maybe want to do a better calculation, politically speaking, and because we deserve the information. Yes, there's going to be some proprietary and commercially sensitive information, human resources type of information that we should absolutely be held very close to the vest. But you got to believe sometimes it's just simply saying, well, that's a cabinet document, can't see it. Well, that's a solicitor-client privilege, can't see it. We need Michael Harvey to be the person that tells us whether or not that's an accurate label to attach to any document. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Ray. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, love your show. Um, I just wanted to comment on some uh, positive experience I've had with uh, Eastern Health. Okay. Uh, I know not everyone has that experience, but uh, eight weeks ago, I was very fortunate to have some orthopedic surgery. And I got to tell you that uh, pre-op and post-op and through the entire episode, uh, through the orthopedic aspect of things, uh, it was treated very professionally, on time, um, I can't say enough about the care that uh, was given to me. And I wanted to point out that uh, two of the nurses that uh, took care of me while I was in the hospital in the orthopedic ward were uh, recent graduates from uh, from the nursing section. They were just graduated a week prior to actually uh, being on that floor. They were excellent. Had a great experience. Well, I'm glad to hear that. How's recovery going? Excellent, thank you. Uh, yeah, no, everything is great. Uh, the uh, surgery was successful, but and I, I recognize that not everyone uh, has, you know, received the uh, you know, positive experience like I have. But uh, I can't say enough about everything that has transpired from, I said, from the day that I required surgery to to everything uh, since. What does the kind of uh, formal support look like post recovery? Uh, depending, I think, uh, on uh, what type of surgery you, you have, uh, right for, me, my, for me now, uh, other than uh, seeing the surgeon again, uh, which I just did last week, and typical x-rays and things like that, for me, it's, it's nothing more than physio after the fact. Fair enough, and obviously I'm not going to pry into your own medical circumstances, but we know with the uh, joint replacement, hip and knee, these are pretty much day surgeries these days, so to be admitted must be obviously something a little more complicated, but I'm glad that you had the bedside manner and the treatment that you deserve, whether it be whether it was two recent grad nurses or anyone else in the system, because I think far too often, and maybe justifiably so when people have worries about healthcare and healthcare delivery, when you get in, you are dealing with some of the very best professionals. And once you're in the churn, it's a different set of circumstances than when you're at home waiting. And I know the wait list is exhausting. The wait list creates a lot of anxiety. But once people get the treatment and they get the procedure done, then they generally have a very good experience in the hospitals, as they should. 100%. I appreciate the time, Ray. I'm glad uh, that you called. I wish you a speedy recovery, and I'm sure those who you're throwing a bouquet to appreciate it. Thank you uh, for your time on the show. Anytime. Stay in touch, Ray. Good luck. Bye now. Bye now. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, 
interestingly, which is a word I probably overused, is I've mentioned the fact that the province's information privacy commissioner is coming on, Michael Harvey, of course. He's been very generous with his time on this program. Just as I finished saying it and clicked on to take Ray's call, I get a statement sent, and maybe it's because they were listening, but whatever the case may be, of course, we needed and we're hoping to get a reaction from the Justice Minister, John Hogan, about the issues that are put forward by Mr. Harvey. It's pretty, it's pretty short. I'll read it once now, and of course, we'll reiterate it when we speak with Michael Harvey. And this reaction to the news story that I just mentioned. This decision of the Court of Appeal confirms the Commissioner's powers with respect to solicitor-client privilege, which has previously been clarified by the trial division. The Court of Appeal's decision has specifically declared that solicitor-client privilege is an important civil and legal right, as well as the principle of fundamental justice in Canadian law. It goes on to say, solicitor-client privilege, and this is important, can only be set aside by clear, explicit, and unequivocal legislative language. Decisions from the Supreme Court of Canada and now the uh, Court of Appeal here in the, in the province has led to this interpretation in the language of our province's legislation. Given that the Court of Appeal has agreed with the government, uh, the government's interpretation, there is no change to how access requests are processed. The commissioners do not have the final say in the event someone disagrees with the application of the Act as it relates to solicitor-client privilege. The final say rests with the courts. That coming directly from uh, Minister John Hogan's office. So whether or not that was because they were listening and sent along based on my comments, but that's helpful information that we can add to the conversation when we speak with Michael Harvey. All right, let's check in on the Twitter before we get to the news. Wherever you see open line, follow us there. Our email address is openline.fiocm.com. But, of course, the preference here on a call-in talk radio show is your participation via the phone. Let's, come, uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Pam's here in the queue. She wants to talk about some wait time delays concerning her health. So, of course, we had Ray, once he got in, had very good experience and good, and good quality treatment. And as we've pointed out today, and repeatedly it's the weight that becomes so worrisome aggravating and maybe very troublesome to your symptoms and the worsening of whatever ails you pam's up after the news don't go away join greg smith weeknights at 5 45 as he chats with local musicians about life inspiration shows and new music tune into soundcheck your backstage pass to the local music scene on your vocm Welcome back to the show. The province's Information and Privacy Commissioner is Michael Harvey, and he joins us on line number two. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How are you doing? Pretty good. So uh, explain to us what the most recent ruling is that has you in the news. Sure. So the Court of Appeal ruled a couple of weeks ago that, uh, that my office does not have authority to compel uh, documents that a public body claims are legal advice so that I can examine them and confirm that indeed they are legal advice. Now, I, I would imagine that this sounds kind of like gobbledygook for people who don't uh, spend a lot of time with access to information. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to explain it uh, as quickly as I, I can, if you don't mind. Sure. So the, the, when, when someone submits an access information request for the government, uh, to the government, the default is that they get the records. Um, but there are some exceptions, and one exception is legal advice. The government does not need to give you uh, legal advice. Um, but let's say that you, you get the records back from your access request, and you get some records, but the government says, okay, we can't give you these records because they're legal advice. Uh, how are you to know if that exception is validly claimed? Well, that's where we come in. You come to my office and I'll investigate it. You can't look at the records, but in theory, I can. And my job is not to give out 
is to decide whether or not government should be giving out legal advice. It's only to confirm whether or not it's legal advice in the first place. And so that's that's the uh, reason why we exist is to uh, on the on the access information side is to confirm whether or not these exceptions are validly claimed and whether or not the government is following its own law. Now, you know, there are legal battles related to solicitor-client privilege that go back many, many years, and uh, this was a feature of the infamous Bill 29, uh, uh, you know, fiasco, when the government of the day uh, deliberately decided to uh, remove the OIPC's ability to review these kind of documents. And then in 2015, when the Clyde Wells Committee recommended that uh, this new bill that we currently have and that is considered to be you know the best in the country they explicitly said you know this need this authority needs to be restored this is a big part of the bill 29 uh, debate so you know fair enough but in 2016 there was a case in Alberta that the Supreme Court of Canada uh, had a ruling on and and in that case because the Alberta law contains a a clause very similar to ours the the the, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada said no the Alberta law does not provide the Alberta commissioner the ability to to compel these documents now we feel that our law is different and and also there's all this evidence of legislative uh, intent and this is what we've been in the courts trying to argue uh, with for now a few years now but finally the court of appeal has come down and said you know what the the supreme court of canada said those words don't mean that and you know regardless of the evidence of what the legislature intended to do uh, they don't mean that in this province either so that's that is what it is we've exhausted the legal route to fixing this problem but from a from a policy perspective this puts us right back where we were with bill 29 and so we we need to fix the problem uh and so that's why i'm advocating the for the government that since a legal fix uh, did not work that a policy fix is what's required and they need to fix the legislation itself. Yeah, so the legal issue is now done uh, because you say your, your office will not seek leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. I'll just get you to uh, refer back to some of the comments, or pardon me, the news release we have from the Department of Justice. And this one line here kind of stands out. They say solicitor-client privilege can only be set aside by clear, explicit, and unequivocal legislative language. Is the worry that it is being abused and not abiding by clear, explicit, unequivocal le- legislative language? Well, that's not what the, that line is referring to. That line is referring to what the Supreme Court of Canada said. The Supreme Court of Canada said that if if an act is going to uh, is going to, let's say, you know, pierce social client privilege and say, okay, in this, you know, if we assume that social client privilege means it's a secret only between the lawyer and the client, well, you know, if you have a law in place that says, okay, well, this this law says that the commissioner has the authority to look at those documents, not the general public, but the commissioner for this specific purpose. Well, a law can do that, but if it's going to do that, it needs to do that explicitly. And so that's what the Supreme Court said uh, our act did not do and that's the fix that I'm that I'm calling for the, the fix I'm calling for is for the government to say to put those words solicitor client privilege in that authority section of the act to make it clear so that we meet the Supreme Court of Canada's test fair enough 
But to your question, Patty, the, the reason why I, my office needs to be able to look at, at those records in the context of an investigation is for exactly the purpose you said it was, to make sure that the claim is not being abused and claimed more broadly for uh, things that it should not be claimed for. For me, with just a base understanding of how this does work and how it should work, it seems like the the exact office and person to assign a label of solicitor client privilege should be the privacy commissioner because I don't know if it's being abused, but that's the problem here. And when we talk about public policy and public sentiment, you know, this seems to be a miscalculation politically and policy speaking because if we're using things like we're reverting back to Bill 29, which I think was the unraveling of the former PC government, then this one here will automatically give people uh, the cause or the reason to think that, well, if this has been fought by the courts as aggressively as the government has, then there is something to see here, the old smoke and fire relationship. Yeah, well, you know, Patty, my, my job isn't to give political advice to the government, but no, no. I do give, my job is to give policy advice to the government, and our system works better when it has that oversight. And it works better, not only practically, but also in, in giving the population the trust that, okay, when the government tells me the, that these documents are protected legal documents, then we've, I've got something better to go on than just trust me they are, right? So the answer to the just trust me is, okay, well, is there any oversight? And the oversight, that's where we come in. And, and so my position is the presence of trust, you don't, in a democracy, you don't trust an institution because they're, it's nice and because their heart is in the right place and because they're doing good things for the people. You know, I believe most politicians get into it to do good things for the population. But that's not why they should be trusted. They should be trusted because there are institutional checks and balances in place to, to tell the people of the province that the institutions are there to ensure that what's being done is fair and compliant with the law. Now, you know, the, the Department of Justice may, may say, or, you know, I, I don't know what they will say, but the, one potential com- argument uh, is, well, the courts are there. And yes, indeed, they are. The courts are there, but the courts can take a longer time and they can cost money. And that's why the OIPC was created, to provide a, a free and timely review process for this access to information. And that's actually the summary point they make in their news release, that the final say rests with the courts. Are you able to give us an understanding of some specific issues or requests uh, based on one issue of the day or, or the other, where it's come back with, no, I'm sorry, you can't see because it's solicitor client privilege? Is there anything you can tell us? <laughs> well, I mean, I can give you an interesting example of a of a case uh, that we uh, that we dealt with uh, last year. Well, t- I'll give you two examples, Patty. One is um, if you go back to 2009, uh, and between 2009 2011, when we were first engaged with this uh, with this problem. Um, uh, this is pre-Bill 29, right? Uh, there was a court of appeal ruling that found that the law of the day, that is before Bill 29, took that authority away, that the law of the day did have uh, authority for my office to compel these kind of documents. Now, before that ruling, there had been a whole bunch of cases that had kind of been in what we call abeyance, uh, waiting for that ruling. And when they, when the court 
made its decision, they referred all of that and all of those uh, solicitor client, those documents that, that had claims had been made about sister client, they, they said they referred all those back to the office and they said, okay, now go ahead and look at them and tell us whether or not they are indeed solicitor client documents. And what the office, when they reviewed those documents, found was that the vast majority were not. Right. So in that case, there was clear evidence of overbroad claims that was being used. So that's a, that's what we're worried about. But it's not just the abuse that we're concerned about. The the other issue that we're concerned about is just matters of, of good faith interpretation. Here's another example. Uh, there was a, a case having to do with the town of Lewisport and a worst place investigation. Right. So so the town of Lewisport hired a lawyer to do a workplace investigation of an employee of the town. And the the uh, the workplace investigation was done and a report was provided just because they workplace a lawyer is the one who did the workplace investigation doesn't mean that was legal advice. Uh, and so, but some, you know, we've seen before there be claims that, well, yeah, that's legal advice because it was a lawyer, but but there's clear law that that just because a lawyer does something doesn't mean it's legal advice. And there's a there's a test in place, and so uh, we ended up having a dispute about that, and we looked at the documents itself, and it, we had to examine it entirely because, let's say. It, it, you know, it, it may be the case that the workplace investigation report wasn't in its entirely legal advice, but maybe it had some legal advice in it. So we had to look all through, and we found that it, it was not. That ultimately did end up going to court, um, and the court found, indeed, that it was not legal advice. So this illustrates, I guess, two things. First is uh, the, the reason why we need to actually look at the documents Right. So we needed to examine that document front to back. Uh, but the second is the role of the courts. Yes, the courts have an important role. But when they did get involved, it was over a year later uh, before this was resolved. So, yeah, there's a, a critical role for the courts. But the way that a TIPA is meant to operate and the way that the OIPC is meant to operate is it sets up a complaint process and it gives a 65-day deadline for that complaint to be dealt with. So if if you're dealing with a matter related to solicitor client, we won't be able to do, we may not be able to do the review necessary within uh, that timeline because the solicitor client matters may have to go to court. So you're, you're it, it, for that one reason, you're disrupting the whole review process. That the uh, that the act was designed to to implement. I want to ask you about one specific case. It's a conversation we had on this program recently. I can't remember exactly what it was. And it's regarding the Marystown Shipyard Families Incorporated asking for government to take ownership for the health, the sick of the injured workers that were formerly working at that shipyard. They're looking for government documentation about what the government knows and any liabilities they should assume. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, there's not much I can tell you about that because it is uh, the subject of, uh, of investigations that even though we, I don't believe that we currently have one that is, is live before us, it is one that has been the subject of a number that have come back in, uh, in the past. And so I, I would anticipate that this is not the uh, that we'll be hearing more on that. So I, I don't really want to get into the specifics. Appreciate your time. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead, Michael. That, that's it. Okay. I really appreciate your time as usual. Thanks for doing this. Pleasure to talk to you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Michael Harvey, the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner. Pam, we appreciate your patience. She wants to tell us about the amount of time she's been waiting to get an appointment. She has a brain aneurysm. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Pam. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Good. Okay. It's a bit of a coincidence I'm calling you today. Um, five years ago today, my father passed away of a brain aneurysm. Um, out on the highway, and I actually called you probably about a week later with all the issues we had with 911 and getting my dad to the hospital and stuff. Okay. So when somebody in your family dies, they always recommend that you go and get tested yourself for a brain aneurysm. So I put it off and put it off because I, I, I always thought to myself, I really don't want to know. So my family doctor was giving up her practice in October of last year, 2022. So I went to her in September and said, you know, maybe I will get my scan done now just in case I do have one and you're going to be gone and I won't have anyone to deal with, right? So in September of 2022, I was diagnosed, I do indeed have a brain aneurysm. So I finally got an appointment to see a neurosurgeon for August the 15th this past summer. And when I went in and seen him, he basically, I'm from the Marystown area, so he said, okay, well, I'll schedule an appointment for you to get another CT scan because you're supposed to get one done every year. So I had my CT scan done on September the 13th, so just last week. And I was told by the neurosurgeon that when you get your CT scan done, give my office a call and, you know, we'll do a phone call with you and give you your results. So when I called his office, he had told me that I had to call the appointment number. So I called them. So my appointment to get my results to see if my aneurysm has grown is June the 13th, 2024, for a phone call, not an in-person appointment. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes a phone call or a uh, a Zoom call or that virtual care might be helpful, but possibly not in your circumstance. Like, I'm I'm sure my aneurysm probably hasn't grown. Like I'm, comp- you know what I mean. But at the end of the day, it's just peace of mind. So, especially given today is five years ago, my dad died of one, and I'm not able to get the results of my CT scan until June of next year. <laughs> To me, it just sounds a bit ludicrous, like there's something not right here. Uh, can you help me have a better understanding of the delay? If you have the scan done, is it no one's read it yet, or you simply can't get the results until you get a face-to-face appointment, or what's the holdup? The holdup is that you need someone to read it. So the neurosurgeon is actually the person who has to read it. Yeah. And the, appoint- the first appointment I can get with him is June the 13th, 2024. And that's a phone call. That's not an in-person appointment. Right. And so do you have uh, ongoing monitoring of your, whether it be symptoms or simply how you feel? Because, you know, knowing that you have something like that would give obvious uh, reason for concern, rightfully so. Well, right now it's just they do it every year. So once you're first diagnosed with an aneurysm, then they'll do it every year. So if, like my results now, whenever I get them, shows that my aneurysm is indeed growing, well, then they'll probably, you know, it'll be every six months you'll get a CT scan. But as of right now, it's every year. Um, but again, like I said, I mean, I had my test on last week, and I can't get my results right until June of next year. <laughs> so I know this may be a very general, maybe even a prying question. Feel free not to answer. What does it actually mean for your day-to-day life? And I'm not talking about symptoms worsening, but, you know, how has it impacted you? Um, for example, and I don't mind sharing a bit of personal um, Back in August, I actually woke up probably about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I, was, I couldn't stand up. I was falling down. You know, I was, everything was a spin. And so I was totally freaking out because I thought, okay, my aneurysm is busting. You know, like something is not right here. Something is going wrong. And I managed to wait until 6 o'clock in the morning because I was going to call an ambulance, but I didn't want to frighten my kids. So I just decided to drive myself, which was a good idea on hindsight. But anyway, I did it. And it turns out I had vertigo as well. 
but uh, thank God, but I was convinced, you know, that I was my aneurysm was breaking. And every day, if you get a headache or um, because where my aneurysm is, one of the main things they tell me to look for is my eyesight. Like if your eyesight starts to get worse, you know, go to a doctor right away. Um, so you're always constantly thinking, you know, every sign, every symptom is, oh, that's my aneurysm, that's my aneurysm. When in, in hindsight, it's probably not, but you can't help but to put your, your mind there. I can only imagine. Uh, Pam, I appreciate the info. And like I said, you know, when Jay called giving a bouquet to Eastern Health the way he was treated, that's, I think, a pretty common a pretty common reaction. Now, since then, I've had an email from someone saying that they received the exact opposite type of care and they're really quite frustrated. And as you're frustrated and anxious about the fact they have to wait so long for an appointment so that someone had, you know, the neurosurgeon had read the CT report so that you know exactly where you stand and exactly what's going on, it's, it's amazing stuff. So, you know, in some form, there's lots of good quality care being offered, but when you don't even know when the care is coming, if and when you need it, that's what gives people so much anxiety, and I completely understand. Uh, would you like to say anything else? No, that's it. I just wanted to, I don't know, maybe if somebody will hear me today, that somebody will actually read my CT scan and give me a call. I don't know, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. if Maybe if I went to the emergency room, they would read it. I don't know. I really have no earthly idea, but I sure hope that you're doing okay, and I hope whatever help you need uh, comes as soon as possible. I wish you well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pam. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Something else. Boy, man. Uh, let's go to line number four. Gerald, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Doing okay. How about you? Good. Patty, uh, see if you can find this. Out. I know you can't because 90% of Newfoundland listen to your show. Leo, so <laughs> you can get out of there. <laughs> uh, Patty, I want to know who in the guy come up with why are they changing 709 area code? Is there a legitimate reason for it? Well, I don't think they're changing. We're adding a second code. So 709 will still be in place, but for the oh. additional bandwidth required, and that's not the right word, but we're just adding, or pardon me, the CRTC is adding 879, but 709 is not going away. Oh, oh, okay, God. Yeah. Okay, sir, you have yourself a good day. Thank you. No problem, Gerald. All the best. Okay, bye. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, so the whole 10-digit dialing, you know, so right now calling, I, I think people are experiencing it already. I've, I've fixed my address book to add 709 to the landlines that I call. All the cell phone numbers I have already have 709 in front of them for the obvious reason because it's, you know, for the ability to text, you require the uh, the area code. So the addition of 879 will be for some. That's you know, always been anticipated that with increased volume, there might be the need, like it's very, very common in other parts of the country with more than one area code inside a province, and that's coming here. And all of that is to free up uh, the ability for the new implementation of the mental health crisis line, which will be 988. So that's what's coming. But 709 is not going anywhere. Uh, let's go to line five before we get to the news. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Yeah, Eddie. Yes, sir. I'm a senior citizen. I'm almost 68 years old, mm -hmm. and I also have, uh, I had two aneurysms. I have one in my stomach, which they uh, repaired, and I've had no trouble with it since. But I've also got one on my heart that's uh, 4.8, and they usually only go to 5 before they, they bust. But that's not the reason I'm calling this morning, Patty. Okay. I was assaulted on uh, September 3rd on Prowse Avenue in St. John's, 
and the police are having trouble finding uh, the person that was responsible. And I was wondering if I could put it over your line. Absolutely. What happened? Uh, uh, there was uh, three people who, uh, they, two of them took off and one hid behind my van. So I got out to see what was going on. And when I when I come around the back of the van, he was waiting for me, and he struck me in the, the chest, almost in the heart, and I went down, and when I went down, he started fishing into me. And there was a bunch of people around, and uh, he took off, and... Uh, I ended up in hospital, and I ended up having to go back again the next night because I'm having trouble with my left lung uh, breathing. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, for for an unprovoked senior citizen to get a beating like I've got, it's it's unbelievable. Uh, this day and age, what's going on out there? And if there was anybody that seen anything or knew where this person was, I would uh, beg them to phone the police and let them know uh, how to get uh, in touch with this person because I'm still having trouble breathing with the... Uh, the bangs that he gave me. He blackened my two eyes. He uh, struck me in the ear. He struck me in the lip. I've had bruises in several other places. And uh, it's it's just uh, unbelievable that uh, a young fella about 40 years old would do this to a senior citizen for no, uh, you know, for no reason. It was totally, totally unprovoked. It's horrendous. It's absolutely awful that that happened to you. It's a heartbreaking story. So if you were on Prowse Avenue and you saw this happen, please do the right thing and contact the Royal New Flag Constabulary. You owe it to every senior out there who might, this might happen to someone else. And so if you see it, say something. It's just awful. I feel terrible for you this morning, sir. I'm glad you called, but this is a just an unbelievable story. Bad, there's bad people out there. Patty, because... I mean, it could be someone else's father tomorrow or the next day. And it's not very pleasant having to live with a person that can do something like this and get away with it. It's just simply dreadful. So if you saw this happen, please do the right thing and contact the RNC. I wish you a speedy recovery this morning, sir. I'm really sorry that it happened to you, but you're always welcome on the show. Let me know how this all works out. I will. Thank you very much, Patty. I appreciate it, and have a good day. You too, sir. Take good care. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Imagine, right? Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, there's a mindfulness instructor to talk about Well-Being Week. John wants to respond to the call we had uh, with Pam, who's waiting until June of 2024 for uh, an appointment to see who's going to be able to read her CT scan. And I don't know who exactly is responsible for reading, whether it be simply the radiologist or a neurosurgeon or what have you, but there you go. And Elizabeth is also there to talk about the cost of rent. Don't go away. 
Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Oh, welcome back to the program. Let's begin this segment on line number five. Say good morning to the president of the Western Senior Hockey League. That's Andy Brake. Good morning, Andy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Well, I tell you what, I have nothing to do with your league, but I felt terrible for everyone that worked so hard to get the Western Senior Hockey League back in action. Then lo and behold, you lose one of your three teams, the Deer Lake Red Wings, going to participate in the Central West League. What happened? Well, I guess, Patty, to give you a little bit of history here and to fill in your listeners, basically what transpired is we had an application uh, coming to the league out of uh, Stephenville uh, for a fourth entry into our team. And the Cornerbrook Royals and the Port of Bass Mounters at this time felt it was too soon, be it that we only had a 12-game season last year, uh, wanted to complete another full season uh, before allowing a fourth team. I guess in light of that, uh, Deerlick, of course, was, was voting in favor of accepting the team out of Stephenville. And when that did not happen, I guess they went and, and seeked other avenues uh, to find themselves a four-team league to operate in. And so help me understand the structure of Central West. So does that now mean it's Deerlake, Gander, Grand Falls, Windsor, and Clarenville? No, uh, Gander is not in the equation. Okay. Uh, our league is, first of all, Patty, is structured Deer Lake, Cornerbrook, Port of Basque. Okay. Uh, and as it stands now, uh, Deer Lake has uh, pulled the plug uh, and pulled out of the league. So right now we are just up two teams, the Royals and the Mariners out of Port of Basque. As I said, I think uh, from what I can hear through the grapevine, uh, Deer Lake is talking with Grand Falls to enter. Uh, I've ne- I have not heard talks of uh, Gander at all, Patty. They've also, of course, are uh, speaking to the applicants out of Stephenville. And from what I can gather as well, they're speaking uh, to a group out of Corner Brook to form a 14 league. So what does that mean for Western Senior Hockey right now? Are you going to look to join forces with the other league that can grow, or what does it mean? Well, I guess right now we're at a standstill, uh, Patty. Uh, You know, the two teams that are left, um, you know, are looking for a third entry so that we can move forward uh, this season with a league. Uh, And I guess also the other thing, we're just uh, sitting and waiting because – you know, the if there is to be a new league in Central West, that league has to be sanctioned by Hockey Newfoundland and Labrador. So I guess we'll have to wait and see what the outcome uh, of that application to the governing body in the province will be. And I guess then we go from there. Yeah, it's a terrible body blow for you and the others, Tony Buckle, Jamie Young, and others who have worked hard to get this back off the ground. What do you expect to happen here now with what might be a rush for players looking for releases? Uh, Patty, your guess is as good as mine at this juncture. I mean, there's there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of talks going on. So at the end of the day, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see uh, how this thing unfolds. I really, uh, you know, I don't want to try to, I don't have a crystal ball 
I can't read into the future. So I'd love to be able to answer your question, but but in all truth, I can't. Yeah, it, and possibly it was an unfair question, but we all know what happens when things like this uh, come to pass is that players who are still determined to get a game will try to find a game. And so I, I don't know what's going to happen either, Andy. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. But when there's more information to share, you can, can tell us what's going to happen with the two teams you have or the structure of the other league and sanctioning that's pending. I'd appreciate your time and I wish you well. And I'm sorry to hear that this happened. I appreciate your time, Patty. And yes, and anytime there's any new news, give me a call anytime, my friend. I'll give you an update. I appreciate it, Andy. Good luck. Enjoy the day. Thank you too, sir. Bye-bye. Andrew Brake, president of the Western Senior Hockey League. Man, that's terrible. Uh, Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Andrew Safer. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. Thank you very much for taking my call. Pleasure. Uh, This is the province's first well-being week, and I wanted to talk to you a bit about mindfulness because it's it's actually a self-serve way that we can nurture and develop our own well-being. So mindfulness, we're we're talking about uh, training our attention, operating uh, so that we're, we're orienting ourselves to the present moment, and we're cultivating what's called non-judgment, uh, which is a way that we can uh, see the whole picture of whatever's going on instead of just taking a one-sided view. So those are uh, the elements that we're cultivating. There's a practice that's done, and um, a lot of it has to do with getting more familiar with how our mind is, is working all the time. and We have all kinds of thoughts and ideas uh, coming and going and zipping around and um, there's a lot of randomness to that and we can easily get lost in like the rabbit holes of our own mind and um, so this is a practice that's imposing a discipline on that randomness it's we're not trying to get rid of any of that activity but we can recognize when we're lost and then use that as a springboard to come back to the present moment so that's really what's happening with the 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 training and um, with uh, people who are dealing with anxiety and depression this can be very helpful because the rabbit holes um, or the storylines uh, can get us totally uh, discombobulated totally involved and we can lose sight of what's actually going on around us for example um, so there's going to be a mindfulness training uh, workshop series uh, starting on September 27th, and um, uh, for, particularly for people with dealing with anxiety and stress, but pretty much dealing with everything. Um, it's a, a six-week program, and the reason the, a lot of the mindfulness training happens that way is so people, uh, they learn the practice in the very beginning, they are developing it along the way, but like anything else, uh, we need to sort of develop it as a habit, and that takes a bit of time. So um, I can say that anyone interested could go to um, Safer Mindfulness, S-A-F-E-R-M-I-N-D-F-U-L-N-E-S-S.com. First off, I don't know much about this, Andrew, but right off the bat, first thing we all have to do is to accept our actual reality. You know, you can't pretend that things are okay if they're not. You can't pretend you're not overwhelmed because you probably are. If, if that ever enters your mind, so accepting who you are, where you are, how you coexist with all the external pressures is pretty important first step. How would this difference, say, for instance, with just some basic meditation techniques? Well, actually, this is a form of meditation. It is Okay. 
Yeah, for sure. And there, there's different, uh, like you say, different meditation techniques. They, they may emphasize one element or another element, but uh, meditation is a wonderful way to get to know our own mind better and also develop that appreciation that you were just talking about, appreciation for ourselves and for what's actually going on. You know, I have to incorporate techniques, not to compartmentalize, because at some point, if you just use that as your day-to-day routine to deal with your anxieties and the pressures you feel, eventually they boil over. So dealing with them, acknowledging that they're real, is really the first step for me. I've actually tried some meditation in the recent past. It was actually advice coming from my doctor, because my mind is racing a million miles an hour all the time. I think basically because of what, for what I do for a living. But uh, for folks who are interested, you just go to Safer Mind mindfulness.ca, I think is what you said, right, Andrew? Dot com. Dot com. And maybe if you're interested in participating in that six-week course, it might be something for you because we're all trying to find a way to not only escape, but to just quiet our busy minds. And it's it's a real tall task for some. I know it is for me. So maybe I'll do a bit more reading on mindfulness, maybe try to incorporate it into my new trying to quiet my mind strategy that is kind of working, but maybe not the way I needed to. I appreciate this this morning, Andrew. Would you like to say anything else? Uh, No, just uh, the idea of quieting the mind. I think we can all relate to that. Um, But we're not trying to get rid of our thoughts or our feelings or anything. But like you said, it's becoming aware of them and accepting them. And then our relationship to them doesn't have to be so... We don't have to get so stuck on them. You know, we can... I appreciate that they're here, and we can actually let them go easier. I appreciate this, Andrew. Good luck with it, and I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. When we come back, Elizabeth, to talk about the cost of rent, and John would like to get a response into Pam. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number two. Good morning, Elizabeth. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. Not too bad. Uh, the reason why I'm calling is that uh, I got a son living out in St. John's, right? Mm-hmm. And he's he was subsidized to this apartment. I don't want to say his name. Okay. But anyway, he uh, got uh, his rent has gone up to $100, and that don't start till December the 1st. And they phoned social services about it. No, they were not paid. So he has his rent subsidized by the social services, and but they're not going to increase the subsidy even yeah, though the rent is increasing. Yeah, that's right, yes. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, you know, how is he going to live? I mean, he's only getting a bit of money, he's only himself, right? Does he have any work as well? No, no, he cannot work. He was in hospital. He, ha- he got a bad heart. Okay. No, he's not, he's not even allowed to lift anything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the price of rent is out of control. Even with the inflation numbers that we got yesterday, uh, rent uptick last month six point nine percent on the average across the country. So while we're already in a pickle, and the affordability for housing is out of control, you know more hikes are coming. I think we're all just breathing a sigh of relief that the Bank of Canada didn't adjust the interest rate up again because inevitably that would make mortgages harder to get, mortgages more expensive, rent would go up because landlords' inputs uh, would go up. So we've got to find a way to break this cycle. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's very difficult. You know, I mean, you wouldn't mind going up fifty dollars or twenty-five, but to a hundred dollars, you know, it's a bit too much for him. And like I said, he's been in hospital twice. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like I told her, he got a bad heart and he's not allowed to lift anything. And I can't pay it because uh, help me pay it because I'm paying rent myself. Mm-hmm. And where right? are you living, Elizabeth? Uh, I'm living in paradise. Okay. And so is there a reason why your son couldn't move in with you and you guys share the price of rent? No, no, no. Uh, it's only to, uh, see, what we're doing here now, I'm living with my son, right? And two of us are paying the rent between us. And there's only two bedrooms. Okay. So, so it's a space issue. Today. Okay. Right. Yeah, I don't know what he, I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know either. I think that's a big question a lot of people are asking about what we see with the increase in rent, no doubt. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, that's it. I don't know. We'll find out. But uh, the like I said, social services won't help me. Tony, he was up to the limit. That was it. I appreciate the time this morning, Elizabeth. We'll see how it shakes out. But I think the rent and the affordability conversation is the furthest thing from gone away. It may indeed be the biggest issue in the country today. If you had to ask me uh, six months ago, I would have said, well, it's health care and clearly health care. I think housing has kind of overtaken it insofar as the concerns people rightfully have, and and including yours for your son and his ability to pay. Uh, I wish you and your family well, Elizabeth. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, final word this morning goes to line number four. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Well, good morning, Patty. Welcome uh, to the show. What, what was the uh, the lady's name again who had to wait for her aneurysm uh, report? It, her name was Pam. 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 Yep. Yeah, okay, well, I, I had a, uh, a hernia that I recognized back in April. Went to my local doctor, and she wanted to send me for an ultrasound. This is back in April of this year. Well, during the summer, I I went down to visit my family down in the States. And uh, while I was there, that hernia became incarcerated. And I needed to have an emergency operation. Fortunately, uh, I'm a vet, so they helped cover it. I had insurance, and they helped cover it. I got, actually, my wife picked up uh, my appointment for the urgent ultrasound, and the date was September 25th of this year. So if I waited for the ultrasound and for the, the results from the ultrasound, I might not be here now. Incarceration, uh, uh, an incarcerated hernia means that it drops down uh, in, into your scrotum. And the doctor who operated on me said he, he put uh, about three feet of my lower intestine back into me. Whoa. So, that's my story, and I, I I appreciate what Pam had to say. I agree. The wait is way too long. It can be for many, many procedures. I've seen a hernia. I mean, not inside the the skin, but I've seen it. It just, it looks like it's something absolutely unbearable to live with. And uh, so how does recovery work? So after you have the procedure, so does that mean it's gone, or is there a risk of hernias returning? I don't know much about it. Uh, I think I'm fine. I, I don't have any pain. Uh, I've been up here now since, since uh, uh, July, and uh, I'm back uh, going to the Y swimming and everything. So, no, I think I think the operation was extremely successful. Uh, of course, I also had aneurysms, and uh, <laughs> the operation on the aneurysms left a scar on my right side of my, my hip area, and this one 
for this latest operation, left the scar on my left side. So I got matching scars. Better to live with the scar <laughs> than the than the pain. No, you're right about that. You're right about that. I appreciate the time. I wish you nothing but the best, John. Thanks for this. Uh, thanks for taking the call. My pleasure. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, scars. I mean, the old matching scars and wounds kind of conversation i know i have one particular scar the surgeon who i will not name is the furthest thing from a seamstress it's uh it's pretty it's a sight to behold let's put it that way okay final check in on social media the old twitter box this morning we're vocm open line comment on what you've heard here or things we you think we should be talking about on the program you can also send along your thoughts via email the email address is open line at vocm.com all right pretty good show today big thanks oh i'm getting out a bit too early am i dave yeah, absolutely. Okay, quick mention of some developments going on with the the allegations that the Prime Minister told the country about regarding the fact that they say the intelligence gathering has asserted that the Indian government, through their agents, assassinated a PCC leader back in June. Some, you know, of course, there's, it's inevitable. We will see politics made of this story. But again, I'll ask the fundamental question that maybe you'd like to respond to social media, email, or on the phone tomorrow, is... What exactly do we want people to do, including the Prime Minister, with this type of information? Sit on it like they did with uh, foreign interference in elections, which he's been taken to task too widely and roundly? Or do you want us to be told? I'm kind of stuck in, maybe it's just the politics of the day that really muddies the waters, but that one's on my mind. As hopefully I'll use some mindfulness to shed that for a couple of hours this afternoon. All right, good show today. Big thanks for everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.